Welcome to Pick Me Up, I'm Scared, the podcast. I'm your host, Madeline. And I'm your co-host, Kenna. All right, Kenna, before we get started on today's episode, housekeeping. Yes, first of all, thank you so much for listening. And if you would like to support us financially, we are on Patreon at patreon.com slash pickmeupimscared. And for $3 a month, you get at minimum two bonus episodes. We have other fun things on there, such as a little budgeting spreadsheet that we made, stuff like that. You get more. You do get more. And also sometimes we post uh, photos or like image content that's related to the main episode uh, every week. And people seem to like that stuff too. Yes. Uh, Yeah. It's just, it's a good way if you want to support us by, you know, since we don't do ads here. Yes, since we don't do ads and we want to keep the main episode ad-free, Patreon is the way that we monetize the podcast and all of our labor. And uh, I know, obviously, our sound quality is kind of an issue on this podcast, so we're hoping that if we're able to get the Patreon up to enough where it makes sense for us to maybe hire someone to help us figure out the sound quality. Yes, that is, you know, we want to just make it better and be more like pod is life. Yes. Um, and again, that is only $3 per month. And if you are an OG Patreon member, you are still staying at $2 a month. That is true. You get a discount. Yes. Inflation doesn't apply to you, baby. You're locked Yeah. In. Sorry. Those are, you know, the OG besties. But we love new besties. We love everybody. Um, also, the bonus episodes that we're doing for the month of July, one is already up. The second one will be up, I believe, on Monday, tomorrow, the last day of the month. And they are ADHD hacks and tips from us. From us. Uh, Not from doctors. Just from two people trying to survive with ADHD. Two hot people with ADHD. Exactly. <laughs> uh, so I think and I'm doing right. hot people in air quotes. Yes. And then next month, I think we're going to do a couple more, like, how-to kind of episodes. We try to base the content on Patreon and here off of some of your guys' recommendations that you give us in the Patreon messages. That's the best way to recommend a topic to us. So the ones we'll be doing next month, one of them is going to be dating tips. Yes, how-to dating tips, because I feel like out of many of our friends, we have been the most successful daters. I love dating. I'm very good at dating. I enjoy dating very much. Um, I'm 50% success rate. I think that's pretty good. That's pretty good. Uh, I think it's, I think it's fine. It's not zero. Yeah, I also think But also, you know, sometimes dating, also, sometimes dating is overrated. It's not the, you know, it's not the most important thing in life, but It can be fun. I think it can be fun. I love it, and I think it's really fun. Um, Also, the funny thing, though, is that I think I am the pretty good at dating compared to other people I know, Uh, but whenever I tell people my dating tips, they think I'm insane. Yeah, my thing, too, about wanting to do a bonus episode on dating tips from uh, people who are not Andrew Tate or weirdo... MAGA people. Oh, that chick that everybody has been talking about lately? Uh, huh? Pearly things, you know? Her? Oh, I, I came across that on my TikTok and it is just, it's so, it's just a way to move the conversation to like an extremely stupid place. So people think that things are unreasonable are now reasonable because uh, someone said that women shouldn't work. Yeah, some lady. I mean, I think that some women shouldn't work and by some women, I mean 
a person, me, who only considers myself kind of a woman, sometimes when rhetorically convenient. I think I shouldn't work, is what I'm saying. <laughs> That's my I actually would say nobody should work. Yeah. I think that out of nobody, though, it's most important that I don't work. <laughs> Just and kidding. I mean nobody. I feel like... Uh, I like labor. I actually love labor. That was a joke. I think that people like to do stuff. No, I do. To I an end to that stuff. helps other people. But, you know... We're we're getting off the the dating rails here. Okay. I just there will be the episode about dating. Yeah, from uh two lefty people, yes. not not alt right weirdos who are getting, frankly, giving the most asinine, or not even asinine, the most just wild advice. Like ignore them, pretend you hate them. Yes. Just gonna say spoiler alert a good idea. Yeah, probably not a good idea. That's... Don't act like you hate someone to get them to like you. Right, that is an ad for next week's <laughs> <laughs> Patreon bonus episodes. Uh, I have some other stuff for our housekeeping, too. Obviously, there is the book. My book is available for pre-order, and the book people tell me the pre-orders are very helpful, so I'm going to keep telling you guys about the pre-order if you haven't pre-ordered it yet. Uh, there is a link on my personal Instagram, which is Madeline Pendleton, Pendleton like the wool company. And there you can go to Penguin Random House and there is a link for multiple places you can pre-order it. Uh, you can pre-order it from Barnes & Noble, thegreatsatan.com, aka Amazon, which, uh, whatever. But the good thing about them is that they do a really good job of keeping track of, like, the analytics. So it's kind of fun to see. Uh, Kenna said at one point I was beating Rich Dad, Poor Dad in uh, In some section. In some section in the charts. And that felt really uh, validating. But also there's some smaller bookstores I think you can pre-order them from as well. Like Powell's. Like Powell's, but somebody online told me Powell's does union busting. They do. Really bad. Ooh. Yeah, basically, uh... They're all the bookstores that you can pre-order my book from are evil. So... Sorry, I don't make the rules. The publishing company makes the rules. Um, but yeah, so you can pre-order the book from one of many evil options available at your disposal. You can choose the lesser of the evils to suit your needs. And it is $27, and it... It's kind of long. I was looking at the page count. It's like over 300 pages. Wow. Someone was asking on our Patreon if you were going to do the audiobook. Well, and I, I said TBD. Yes, because I have to audition for it. But I think uh, you're probably the best candidate. Or me. Or Kenna. This would be uh, you and uh, your book. I was born in Fresno, California, which some people say is the New Jersey of California. But I would say... That New Jersey is the Fresno of America. Yeah, I think that's pretty good, actually. I think you <laughs> nailed it. So I think between me and Kenna, one of us has it in the bag for the audiobook. Yeah. You can pre-order the audiobook now as well. Um, but yeah, so that's the book thing. It is called I Survived Capitalism and All I Got Was This Lousy T-Shirt. And it is a memoir. It's the story of my life. But every single chapter relates to a lesson I learned about money. So they call it a memoir with a purpose. So at the end of every chapter, there's also like a practical how-to thing about a lesson I learned about money. Uh, the other thing I wanted to add in for housekeeping is that we're uh, officially in Leo season, which means for the entire month of August, Kenna and I cannot do a podcast. Legally. We legally, as Leos, are not permitted to labor <laughs> on the weekends of the month of our birthday. Yes. So we will be off uh, through the entire month of August. We will still be posting our two bonus episodes to Patreon, but our normal content will indeed be gone we will be resuming in september so that's our little summer break announcement and i think that's everything we've got for housekeeping yes that's it so with that out of the way uh we're gonna start the episode and you know before we start 
I just want to give a real big trigger warning on this episode. Okay. It is bad. Okay. Everything you can imagine that's bad, it's that. Wow. So yeah, so if you are sensitive to everything bad, uh, which you should be because humanity means that we do not like bad things. We don't like hearing about bad things happening to people, people being harmed, children being harmed, uh, genocide, imperialism, any of that. You might want to skip this episode. As always, I'm not going to be gratuitous about it. We're not going to get into too many horrifying details. Um, We're not going to try to do like the sensational content thing. Uh, But it is bad. So, with that in mind, we're going to start the episode, and I'm going to ask you a question, Kenna. It's not a great one. Okay. Have you ever heard of the Jeju Massacre? No. No, I had never heard of this uh, either. It is actually a recommendation from one of our listeners, who was like, you should do an episode about this, because people don't talk about it that much. So, it is a horrific massacre that occurred on Jeju Island in what is now known as South Korea, in the 1940s, when local people there attempted to protest U.S. imperialism and United Nations control over Korea following World War II. Oh, wow. Yes, and I had never heard about this. Um, I hadn't really done much research on the Korean War either. Yeah, I actually know very little about the Korean War. All I know is that uh, one of my grandpas was in it. Yeah, I think this is something that a lot of older family members we know were in it. Um definitely that. I think that also I vaguely understood it was like a Cold War, communism, North Korea, South Korea thing, but I wasn't really uh, up to date on the history of imperialism and colonization in Korea and like kind of the playing ground for what emerged before the Korean War. Yeah, I I frankly don't know a lot about it. Yeah, I just, I think I always assumed it was just like a small continuation of World War II slash Cold War stuff. Yeah, so it is kind of that. Um, And the time that the Jeju Massacre came about, which we'll be talking about, was under this broader period of South Koreans protesting imperialism uh, to harrowing results throughout South Korea. Remember, Jeju is just like a small island in South Korea. And this was during these broader fights for independence, like for Korea to be independent on the whole and outside of the scope of influence and control from all these different countries. And this is when the Jeju massacre happened. And at this time, around 10% of Jeju's population was murdered in one year. Whoa. And lots of people do consider it a genocide. And depending on your source, between 30,000 to 80,000 people were killed uh, from April 3rd, 1948 to May 13th, 1949. Whoa. Yeah, so around a year. And the United States had our hands all over the situation, uh, which is why we're covering it on the podcast. So to explain how this horrifying event even came to be, we have to start way back with the 1800s. Yeah, where all the the best things came from. Yeah, when the United (laughs) States got a lot of power and was like, how can I fucking ruin everything? I love it. Like the 1800s, everybody's having a great time. Yeah, yeah. Uh, So let's set the scene for what was going on in Korea leading up to this horrific fucking atrocity. This is a really, really gnarly thing that occurred. And it does involve a lot of key players, and it can get a little complicated. But mostly, the things to know is that it involves the British, the United States, Korea, China, and Japan. Okay. So... We're going to start in like 1800, from 1800 to 1893, and we're going to talk about Korea. So you know, obviously, Kata Korea used to be unified. It was one place. It was one country, Korea. Yes, because now it is 
Uh, I don't know the official terms of the countries, but I just know there's North Korea and South Korea. Yeah. But you know, like some countries, you don't realize they officially actually have different names. Yes. Like it might be like the Republic of... Right. So North Korea is the Democratic Republic... Oh, the Democratic, the DPRK, the Democratic People's Republic of Korea. That's, yeah, that's what I was thinking of, but could could not remember. Right. And for a long time, South Korea was the Republic of Korea, the ROK, I believe. Um, But I'm not sure what the official name is now. And I think that is relevant and interesting to bring up because something that we're going to hear throughout this is that both North Korea and South Korea, most people want a unified Korea. And both North Korea and South Korea think that they are the rightful leaders of the unification. Mm. So it's not like they're like, no, we don't want anything to do with the other people. They're like, yes, we are meant to be one, but the conflict uh, that emerges between North Korea and South Korea is over who the true Korea is, basically. Gotcha. Yes. So for centuries, though, before this, when Korea was still one country, Korea had a relationship with China that some people referred to as a client state type relationship. And obviously... I'm a white Westerner. There's no way I'm ever going to understand the nuance of everything that happened to this region, right? The best I can do is read historians, what they've said about this, read people living in these areas, what they've said about this. But it's pretty hard to read what people in Korea thought about the relationship with China back in the year 1800. They weren't writing about it so much. But basically, the way it worked was this. Korea paid an annual tribute to China, and China helped ensure Korea's safety from foreign aggressors. Now, historians do agree that China's relationship with Korea was pretty hands-off, for what it's worth. They didn't try to control local operations. They had no uh, troops stationed in Korea. But they did take that annual tribute, and they also did exert their opinion over Korean matters of the state. But everyone kind of described it, all the historians I saw, as being just kind of like, hey, it would benefit us if you did this. That's just our advice. And that was kind of the extent of it from what I read. Gotcha. So it was not like imperialism as we think about it. It's not like, for example, how the United States interacts with, I don't know, um, God, what is like one of our like colonies that's not officially a colony? Like Puerto Rico? Like Puerto Rico or something. Exactly. I was going to say Hawaii, but I'm like, they're officially a state Or now, like so the Virgin different. Islands. Exactly. Uh, that type of thing. Yes. So it was a little less hands-on than that. They weren't using them for military gain, blah, blah, blah. Um... Again, I'm not Korean, so this is all speculation based on historians, what they've said. So there might be some things that I get a little bit wrong in recounting how people feel about these things, but I do my best to always look for primary source people talking about their own experiences, which we'll be having a lot more of as we get into more recent history, obviously. It's easier to find people talk about things in recent history. So uh, this is not supposed to be some sort of overbearing or controlling relationship, and some historians are like, both parties liked it. Whatever, we have no way to verify that. But Korea, I'm sure, would have much rather have had its independence if I had to guess, but that was the situation going on with Korea and China for hundreds of years. Now, by the 1800s, the Industrial Revolution started to be in full swing in Europe and the United States. And along with this came, you know, this new form of capitalism that was emerging, like industrial capitalism. And this was occurring in conjunction with industrialization and colonization. Because what happens in industrialization is that you need more and more resources to ramp up your production and get higher profits and more sales, right? And you run out of resources where you are. Yeah, and that's why you need other places to get to get customers and also to get workers and to also get resources. Exactly. So this is where a lot of uh, the inspiration for like white Western countries going into other countries and colonizing and pillaging and taking things, this is where it comes from. This. It's heavily tied to capitalism, obviously, and also industrialized capitalism specifically. 
So European countries start colonizing African and Asian countries to build these empires, right, imperialism, from which to extract resources. And one of these countries that gets colonized or, you know, colonized light is kind of the term. Uh, there's a pretty ardent attempt to do it anyhow, is China. So this is during the Opium Wars. Britain and a few other Western white countries try to take control of China because China gets mad that these British people are illegally bringing opium in from India to sell in China to make money. So China's like, hey, you can't legally be doing this. Why are you doing this? And they're like, let us do what we want. And China's like, no, I don't. This is not okay. So this huge addiction epidemic in China comes about as a result and in 1839, the Chinese government confiscated and destroyed more than 1,400 tons, metric tons of opium that were warehoused at Guangzhou by British merchants. Wow, that's a, that's a lot of opium. It's a lot of opium. So these British merchants get mad, and a few months later, British soldiers kill a Chinese villager, like, just in their town. And the British government is like, we're not going to turn over these soldiers who killed that villager to you guys because we don't want them being tried in a Chinese court system. And China's like, okay, but it happened in China. Like, they broke our law here. This is ridiculous. So China's getting pretty upset at this point that these white Westerners are trampling all over their country and just doing whatever they want. So they set up a blockade of the Pearl River to try to keep the British out. But then their blockade gets destroyed by British warships. So by 1842, British soldiers are now officially occupying Guangzhou, and it's this whole fucked up mess happening between the British and China. And while all of this is happening, obviously China's efforts are being directed towards fighting off Western imperialism. And this means the protection they can realistically offer Korea at the same time is a little bit weakened. Like if your big brother is supposed to protect you from bullies at school, he can't really help you if he himself is getting bullied, right? Yeah. Right. So this is kind of the situation going on. And while all of this is happening, something else is happening in Japan. Now, Japan at this time was what some people in the West just called a closed country, meaning they aren't really interested in trading with people. They're kind of doing their own thing. They do small trading with other countries here and there, but it's super protected and controlled. And it's definitely not happening regularly with the United States. But in the late 1700s to the early 1800s, some American ships got to trade in Nagasaki in Japan, right, by flying the Dutch flag. The Dutch were like, hey, we've got this war going on, I think maybe with the British. But they were like, we're not able to send our own ships in. Can you just, like, go do this trade deal for us and gotcha. just say you're Dutch? So the Americans go do this, and they're like, hey, now that we've had a taste of trading in Japan, it's pretty good. We want more of that. So by 1837, an American businessman who was living in Guangzhou at the time named Charles W. King was like, oh, we could be getting more of that sweet, sweet Japan trade, and I think I have a plan for how to do this. So a few years before he comes up with this plan, three Japanese sailors had been shipwrecked off the coast of Oregon in the United States. So he was like, I bet if I can return these shipwrecked sailors to Japan in exchange for being able to open up trade with them, they're going to be super into it. I'm going to be like, hey, I can get you back your three shipwrecked sailors, your people. I can return them to you, but you got to let me do some trading. Uh, so this kind of maybe works a little, but not a lot. And in 1846, four years after British soldiers were occupying Guangzhou in China, this U.S. commander, James Biddle, goes to Tokyo Bay to request more trade opportunities with Japan. And he brings two ships, all right? One's a regular ship. But the other ship he brings is a warship armed with 72 cannons. Whoa. Real subtle, right? <laughs> Real subtle. <laughs> so he's like, hey, Japan, trade with the United States in a major way, 
or we will destroy you, right? And this is a horrible premonition, obviously, of what's to come like 100 years later with Hiroshima and Nagasaki and the nuclear weapon. And Japan, though, at this time is like, no, fuck off. This is so gnarly. Like, we're not doing this. So this guy fails. He's got to go away. They kind of call his bluff. They're like, we see your warship with 72 cannons. It doesn't make us want to trade with you. Bye bye now. So he fails. Right? Then, though, in 1848, Captain James Glynn sails to Nagasaki. This is another American. And he manages to successfully negotiate a small trade agreement. However, he recommended to the United States, to Congress, that negotiations to open Japan up should just, like, always be backed up with a demonstration of force. He's like, that's what they'll respond to. Just go in hard and heavy and be like, we'll destroy you unless you do. Ugh. Yeah. So the U.S. is still showing up, basically, with a warship armed with 72 cannons. It's just metaphorical now. Yeah. I, you know, as a negotiator, or, you know, I am not a negotiator, but I just don't think that those types of negotiating tactics work. And we will see specifically why they don't work, because it creates this chain effect of all these terrible things happening. Well, I just think about, like, even, like, in hostage situations, they're never like, bring out the hostage or we're going to blow up the building. They're like, right. cool. Yeah. You know, like, they're like, hey, do you want some pizza? Do you want do you want some water? Yeah, you like, got to be friends with you them. You want to talk it out? Like, even if it's, like for, like, nefarious reasons, like, actually being nice is better. Oh, you catch more flies with honey. I know. It's always, like, so surprising to me when people think, like, with the, going back to the dating stuff we were talking about being, that if you're a dick to someone, they will just automatically be nice, because maybe in some cases that happens, but, like, I think it's not in very many cases. No. I think it's kind of like a a scatter shot. It's like the shotgun approach where like you shoot a thousand shots and one person gets shot. Hit. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Uh, so in 1853, this American naval officer, Matthew C. Perry, goes back again, right? And this is after, uh, like, what, five years after James Glenn gave the recommendation to the United States, like, hey, if you want to do this, do go big, big show of force, do that. So five years later, we've got Matthew C. Perry, who's an American naval officer, right? So he's operating within this militaristic capacity, shows up, and he goes to a closed-off harbor in Japan. Like, Japan at this time has, like, one harbor where if you're not Japanese, you're allowed to come in and they won't view it as, like, an act of aggression. He goes to one of the closed-off harbors, and he shows up with steamboats, specifically as a display of American strength, because it's, like, new technology Wait, at like the time. Wait, like, steamboats? Like... Mark Twain steamboats? Yes, exactly. Like, giant boats with billowing <laughs> smoke in the air. Like, steamboats. I'm so, To me, that is not... Well, I mean, you know, it's time and place, but I'm like, that just seems so kooky. Yeah, but it kind of worked, because Japan was like, what the fuck are these boats? We've never seen these boats before, because it was like new Western yes, technology. Yes, but in my mind, it's like, so it'd be like showing up in like a, a Barbie speedboat. Yeah, exactly. It's equally as strange. Um, so he comes with this giant steamboat, and Japan is like, what the fuck is going on? First of all, boat's real weird, okay? Boat's real weird. But second of all, you need to get out of here. There is one harbor where foreigners are welcome. It is not this. You need to fucking go. So he's like, no, I'm not gonna go. And then it gets, like, really, really weird. There's some sort of meetings that take place. There's all this back and forth talking. There's all this, like, weird stuff. Like, I'm not gonna meet with that guy. He's not on my level. I need someone on my level. I'm going to stay on my boat and soak until you bring it. I've been just like, I don't know, maybe like a week or two of just the most bizarre back and forth. 
And eventually he gets some sort of meeting with somebody that he thinks is fancy enough to be on his level, and he's like, trade with us, ah. And they're like, I don't know, man. And then he leaves without an answer. But then he's like, I'm going to be back in six months, and you're going to give me an answer. So in 1854, he does a second visit to, like, demand an answer about the trade thing. And when he returns in 1854, he's already scouting Japan for resources that the U.S. could basically steal. So he's writing notes, and he's like, hey, there's this place, Formosa, which is present-day Taiwan, that's convenient, it's a midway trade location, we could just take this shit over, we could seize it, and we could use it for a base to, like, further explore other parts of Asia. So we see right away from his own notes, this is not just a friendly trade mission, uh, this is the Americans showing up in Japan, like, give us all your shit or we will take it, your choice, basically. And this is all while the British are basically trying to do the same thing in China. So, Perry, on the second visit, actually succeeds. So the United States does not seize Taiwan, because they don't really need to. They're like, well, okay, we got this deal now. And Perry drafts this treaty that ends up being extremely favorable to the United States. It's like a trade agreement, right? The U.S. and Japan are now considered permanent friends, big air quotes on that one, uh, two Japanese ports are now opened up just to the U.S., and they also get access to these Pacific Ocean whales, which is important because at the time it was the United States' primary source of oil. Oh, yeah. Yes. And there's some other stuff that's thrown in there, too. But basically, this is a really good deal for the United States, and it's, like, kind of a mid or not even that good of a deal for Japan. Then in 1858, all this gets formalized in this thing called the Treaty of Amity and Commerce between the U.S. and Japan. But also, it's launched Japan into this really weird place where they were forced to sign these unfavorable trade deals, not only now with the United States, but also with Russia, Britain, France, and the Netherlands, too. Whoa. They're just kind of getting bombarded. And these treaties were bad economically for Japan, but they were also bad in terms of Japan's political sovereignty. Like, suddenly there's all these puppet masters pulling the strings, and Japan is just, like, the sad puppet. You know? So they're like, oh, we gotta do all this stuff so these people don't blow up our country. This is a bummer. So it wasn't until 1868 that the Japanese government attempted to gain back some of the power that was lost to the West in all these weird trade agreements. And the way that Japan decided to do this was by adopting elements of Western technology themselves, the same technology that allowed the West to kind of bully them and assert dominance over them in the first place. Kind of like a two-can-play-at-this game kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So Japan decides to model themselves off of Germany. And uh, this is like pretty interesting. Germany has this high emphasis on medicine. They're also a relatively new-ish country. They have this, like, swift transformation into kind of a powerhouse that people respect. And Germany was, though, yeah, also an empire. You know what I believe is true? Uh, Just a fun fact about German and Japanese. Neither have future tenses. Oh, interesting. Yes. I can't... I'm pretty sure that's true. I need to double check. Okay. So somebody at home can Google it for us and let us know in the show notes. Oh, actually, on Spotify, this is just an aside, there's a place now where you can tell us what you think about the episode, and that's really helpful. So somebody can Google Kenna's Kenna's claim (laughs) about the language, and then you can add it in there if you want. So the government in Japan is like, okay, we're doing Germany. We're just going to become Germany. So they decide to focus on simultaneously modernizing, like, internally. They're like, we got to get some technology going, but also expanding externally empire style. So Japan decides to, yeah, build up its own wealth by doing a little colonizing of its own uh, and become a national empire. That's its goal. So where does Japan start to do this? 
I'm guessing Korea. Yeah, it's Korea. It's super close. It's right there. (laughs) So, meanwhile, though, it's super close, and its protector, China, is, like, otherwise occupied dealing with the little British invaders over there, Mm. messing up their, their life. So Japan establishes these trading settlements in Korea, and especially in the southeastern port of Busan. And there, the Japanese are, like, able to live and trade in the port with certain conditions. Like, the terms of the arrangement were negotiated by Japan and Korea, but overall authority still laid with Korea at this time. Then, though, in 1876, Japan takes a lesson from the United States and basically forces Korea to enter into a new commercial treaty, which is really amazing for Japan and really terrible for Korea. Mm, It's like... You know... Hit dogs holler. Yes. So in 1877, a Japanese settlement is built in Korea, and this begins to serve as this, like, bridgehead for Japanese expansion into continental Asia. And this reminds me of that U.S. Navy guy showing up in Japan and being like, we could just take Taiwan, and then it'll be our gateway into Asia. And now Japan is like, well, we can just build this settlement in Korea, and it'll be our gateway into the rest of Asia. Oof. Very interesting. So just seven years later, in 1884, a group of pro-Japanese reformers uh, in Korea attempt to overthrow the Korean government because they're like, Japan is really cool. Let's just let Japan be in charge of us. Right? So China is like, whoa, whoa, whoa. What the fuck is happening over there? Like, not on our watch. We're still technically the protectors of Korea. Like, I know we've been otherwise engaged, but you can't just throw a whole revolution and make Korea Japan. No. So they send in troops, they, like, defend the king of Korea, and Japan and China following this are like, oh my god, maybe this has gone too far. Like, we could end up in an all-out war with each other, that might not be good for either of us right now. So they have to sign this treaty, basically saying, we're gonna get all of our troops out of Korea, because this is a fight we don't want to take on right now. You know, so, this is a treaty, that gets signed, and they're kind of like, hands off, hands off Korea, everybody walk away. But ten years later, in 1894, Japan changes its mind, apparently, and starts to kind of ramp up its interest in Korea again. So to stave off any other revolutionary efforts, China takes the guy who led the 1884 attempt at this, like, pro-Japanese revolution in Korea, that guy, you know, who's like, Japan's great, let's just be Japan. So they lure him to somewhere in China, assassinate him, then send his body back to Korea, where Korea puts it on display as a warning to any other insurgency kind of attempts or efforts in the future. There's like, this is what happens if you try to lead a weird pro-Japan revolution, Korea and China will kill you. Like, don't do that. So this pisses Japan off, though. They're like, how fucking dare you? This is such an affront to us. And as if that wasn't complicated enough, in 1894, there's also a Korean peasant rebellion that happens that calls for this opposition to Western culture and is like, we need equality for everybody and we need to keep all these Westerners out of here. So the Korean government doesn't like this, though, because they've got all these weird treaties they signed with all these people. So they're like, hey, China, will you come help us squash this peasant rebellion? We can't deal with this right now. So China sends in troops on request to fight this peasant uprising. But then, unprompted, without being asked at all, Japan just sends troops in to fight the Chinese in Korea. Because they're like, whoa, 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 remember when we said hands off Korea? Your hands are very on Korea. So guess what? Our hands are on Korea now, too. So now you've got Japan and China and Korea fighting each other. Yeah, and this gets so gnarly that the original peasants who were rebelling were like, whoa, how about we put our guns down and walk away? Let's just all cool off here, man. Uh, that's how bad it is. They're just like, this is not, we don't need you guys. This has nothing to do with us. But, you know, it doesn't super work. China and Japan are still like, right? And this actually leads to something called the First Sino-Japanese War, Mm. which is the first war between Japan and China. So this war happens from 1894 to 1895. 
So from August 1st, 1894 through 1895, Japan and China are like at each other's throats. Everyone kind of thought that China would have this in the bag too. They're like, China versus Japan, China's gonna crush them. China's massive, you know? But Japan, remember, had been putting all that focus on like using Western technology and quote unquote modernizing. And they actually ended up scoring this really quick and overwhelming victory, both on land and by sea. They just like crushed China. And by March of 1985, Japan was so dominating that China was like, okay, let's talk peace. You got us, right? So this comes out with this new treaty, the Treaty of Shimonoseki, which ended the conflict. And China recognized in this the independence of Korea and ceded control of some areas, including Taiwan. They also agreed to pay a lot of money to Japan and also to give Japan trading privileges in Chinese territories. And after the Sino-Japanese War, Russia, in alliance with France and Germany, forced Japan to return an area of control to China and then promptly leased the territory from China and developed on it. Whoa. So this is kind of where we get the, the you know, Russia coming into play. You're like, wait, wait, what happened? Russia just snuck in there with a sneak treaty deal with China. They were like, hey, I see what you got going on over there. Why don't you throw this in there and then just, like, lease it to us? Why does this seem like a game of risk? It really is. It's such a game of risk. Oh, my God. Like, I do, I'm, like in my mind, when, like, leaders of countries think about this stuff, like, I'm like, is it just like they're playing a game and they just don't imagine that people have real fucking lives? I mean, it might be. It's like a power trip thing. I'm not sure. Um, but this was like a totally secret agreement. It was called the Secret Sino-Russian Treaty, and it was signed in 1896. And it also gave Russians the right to build and operate the Chinese Eastern Railway across northern Manchuria. And this served as a link in the Russian Trans-Siberian Railway. So important. So if you've ever played that train board game? No. Oh my god, it's actually kind of fun. I think I have it. We should do a board game night one night. Oh. But it's like you build these train routes and you try to connect them to get places. And this is kind of what was going on. Russia was like, we need this linking part, but it's in your territory. Please let us use that. So this is also part of their secret agreement they did with China. So then Russia proceeded to acquire numerous concessions over Korea's forests and mines as a result of this kind of dealings that they had going on, these secret dealings. And Russia at this time, you just really see them start to ramp up their presence in in China and Korea. That brings us to 1904 to 1905, the Russo-Japanese War. Mm. So now Russia is like, hee hee hee, I'm meddling, I'm meddling. And Japan's like, what the fuck are you doing over here? Why are you meddling? Right? So everyone's just kind of puppeting, puppeting. It seems like uh, Korea is, everyone's fighting over the the hot country yeah korea is the hot country but everyone fighting over her doesn't want to treat her well yeah they want to harm her Mm. yeah she is in the middle of like a love square with three bad dudes Mm. yeah so by 1904 there are all these foreign presences going on in korea remember how they signed uh trade deals not just with japan but also with the united states and netherlands and russia so russia is an important one here because they had signed these trade deals with korea And this is 1904. So for context, this is 13 years before the 1917 revolution that would take Russia from being this, like, Tsarist kind of economy into, you know, the Marxist, like, kind of USSR we see developing after that under Lenin. So part of the stuff that the workers in that uprising, which I don't want to call, like, Lenin's uprising, obviously, but, like, the Russian Revolution, part of the things that they were opposing were, like, these kind of imperialist tactics of the Tsar. They were like, we don't like this. You know, one of the things famously during World War One that Lenin said is like, 
We do not fight the workers of other countries. Take your guns and turn them on your bosses. Turn them on the presidents and the kings and the czars who sent you to do this. So a lot of the people in Japan or in Russia are looking at this. And they're like, why do we have all this shit going on with Japan and Korea? Get the fuck out of there. This is not okay, right, to the czar. So this is a lot of the complaints they had. But this is before the revolution happens. This is 1904. We're in the thick of the czar's little grabby hands. So during the Sino-Japanese War of 1894 to 1895, Russia had entered Korea alongside Germany and France, and they had formed something called a triple intervention to limit Japan's reach there. But as a result of their success in thwarting Japan, Russia was like, sweet, now we have the freedom to move in and take control over Port Arthur in China. Okay. Yeah, there's a lot happening here. Uh, And then while this happens, Japan tries to stage an all-out coup in Korea, and Russia is like, not so fast, what the fuck are you doing? And this starts this conflict between Russia and Japan in the region that led to the 1904-1905 Russo-Japanese War. So in 1904, the Japanese attacked this Russian fleet at Port Arthur before the formal declaration of war was ever received in Moscow. And this really surprised the Russian Navy, right? They were like, what the fuck? We didn't see this coming. We didn't even know we were at war officially. And this is like an early victory, right? And over the course of the next year, they keep fighting like in Korea, in the Sea of Japan. And this war is actually really, really deadly. There's a lot of casualties on both sides. Uh, The Russians lost 60,000 soldiers. The Japanese lost 41,000 soldiers. Finally, though, the Japanese won and they drove the Russians out of the region, including Korea. And this victory was really shocking because, again, Japan was kind of just like the small country. And now they've won two major wars against two major powerhouses. So it really cemented Japan's power in the region. So the United States is like, don't worry, we're going to help broker your peace treaty, Japan and Russia. So they brokered the peace treaty between these two countries during this war. And it is called the Treaty of Portsmouth because it was signed in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. I know there's so many different places like weird underhand deals this is really like soap opera vibes but with countries yeah right somebody should do a soap opera of this but every country's a person wow right that sounds like one of those animated comedy central shows maybe (laughs) but then I'm like but not funny but not funny but sadly educational sadly educational that should be the tagline of our show uh, pick me up, I'm scared, the podcast. Not funny, but sadly educational. Education with ennui. Yes, exactly. Uh, so, this treaty, it's signed in Portsmouth, New Hampshire in July of 1905, and it does formally end the Russo-Japanese War. And it gives Japan a legal formal right to just, like, take up residence in Korea. It's like, you won. Korea's yours, have at it. And it affirmed the Japanese presence in South Korea in particular, And by this point, Japan had stationed, like, large amounts of police and army units in Korea and already disbanded the Korean army. Because they were like, yep, that's ours. So according, though, also to this other secret agreement that happened, this was the Taft-Katsura Agreement, Roosevelt secretly approved Japan's takeover in Korea in return for Japan's acquiescence to the United States taking over the Philippines. Whoa. Yes, which it had won from Spain in the Spanish-American War. Why Why? Why yeah. are countries, like, it, it really does seem like risk to me. Yeah, oh yeah, all these countries are just trying to colonize, build it's an like empire, po- take over. It's like a poker game, but then you win a country. You win a country. They're trying to control all these countries, yeah. So, they have this little secret deal. Tee-hee-hee, Taft is like, oh, I'll broker your deal. Oh, I'll make it so fair. Mm, but it's it's not fair because he's actually 
metaphorically sleeping with Japan to get to the Philippines. Wow. Soap opera. Um, and as a result, yeah, Imperial Japan is pretty much given carte blanche to do whatever they want in Korea while the global world, world like, turns a blind eye to it. And Teddy Roosevelt won a Nobel Peace Prize. Uh, right? I mean, I'm kind of at this point being like, what, do they mean anything? No, I don't think any of this shit means anything, because didn't Obama, like, win a Nobel Peace Prize, yes. and he is, like, a war criminal? Yeah. Yeah. Even he was like, whoa, 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 now. I, I don't know if I need this thing. Well, that's good, I guess. <laughs> I don't... <laughs> I feel like at the time he was like, uh... So weird. It's like a popularity <laughs> contest. It's rigged. Uh, yeah. So... This all comes to an end, you know, in 1905. So from 1905-ish through 1909, uh, Japan just sets to work expanding their influence in Korea. So they forced the last ruling monarch, King Kojong, to abdicate the throne in 1907 in favor of his feeble son, who was then married off to a Japanese woman and given a Japanese peerage. So Japan power, right? Japan then governed Korea under a residency general and then under a governor general directly uh, who would be, like, subordinate to Japanese prime ministers. So they're like, yeah, yeah, you're like a colony, basically. Like a puppet government? Yeah, yeah, kind of. Just, like, all answering to Japan. And all of the governor generals, they were all high-ranking Japanese military officers. Mm. So the Japanese had hoped to export also Japanese settlers like, to do settler colonialism. Because mm. they're like, we're just going to turn Korea into a mini Japan. So the Japanese did irrigate land, and they introduced, like, new seeds, and they did double the rice yields, but most of the rice was shipped off to Japan, while Koreans went hungry, and in some cases survived by collecting wild plants in the mountains to eat. Mm-hmm. It was really bad. Coal, forests, other resources were harvested, again, to feed the Japanese economy and not to help Korea at all. And industry was developed under Japan there. Sometimes you'll see people be like, but look what Japan did for Korea. It modernized it. But it's kind of like, well, it did it for Japan. Yeah, that's what I learned about that anime, Ranking of Kings. Oh, yeah? Is there an anime about this? No, no, no. But there, I guess there's a part in this that I did not realize was anti-Korean. Whoa. That was referencing exactly this, where like the anime was like, it's like a euphemism for Japan and Korea where they're like, but Japan made Korea so modern. Look at how they lived before. Right. Yes, this and, is totally. And I was like, I thought, it's funny because I was watching the anime at the time. I was like, this seems weird. Yeah. And then I saw a TikTok about it and I was like, why did they have, why did they ruin the cute show with their racism? With this weird, yeah, this weird thing where Japan, the Japanese at the time were just like, we're doing a good thing here for us. Um, but yeah, so 1910 to 1945 kind of changes the nature of how Korea and J- Japan relate. Uh, because in 1910, just five years after the Russo-Japanese War, Korea is officially named as a Japanese colony. It mm. took fears to draft up the paperwork, I guess. And yeah, they're annexed. They are now part of Japan. And Korea, for the next 35 years, is under Japanese rule. Like, really hardcore. And after the annexation, the Korean army was disbanded, the Japanese resident general was put in charge of Korea, and a colonial government was established in Seoul, whose name was changed to Kaijo. Oh. So this also marked the end of the Chosen Dynasty, which had ruled Korea since 1392. Whoa. Yeah, this is wild. This is like 
500 years or something. It's so funny because as an American, our sense of history is comparatively so new. Yes. To other countries where I used to be like, you know, Colorado was the centennial state. The United States was 100 years old. Yeah. And people would be like, uh, in my country, this is a thousand year old vase. <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, this vase is, is like, as you know, or like... I have European friends that are like, yeah, America seems really new. It is, it is really new. And, you know, the sad thing about America being really new is that, like, this is maybe a, a, a different episode we could do, but I feel like capitalism ruins aesthetics, and that's why everything here is so ugly. Mm-hmm. Because we build things to be profitable, not to be beautiful. But, yeah, it's funny because some things that other people would consider ugly, I think is great. Like, like in a John Waters way. Mm. Like, I love the, like, kitschy, little campy, like, mid-century shit. Oh, I like that, too. There's actually this apartment building on Los Feliz Boulevard that I noticed for the first time today that just looks like if 1972 were a building. Oh, I, lo- I love All those it. buildings there. I love, what's the style? It's I think it's called Googie. Where it's kind of like mid-century modern and there's always like a little starburst yes. or a weird little like statuesque like kind of blob thing yes. in front. But it's called Googie, I believe. Yeah, that's But like really I cool. love that shit. Like, But like a lot of people like after the 50s was like, this is so ugly. All the atomic shit is so ugly. And I was like, this is great. Or like I was watching The Virgin Suicides and I was like, the house was like perfect 1970s wood paneling like slight little house on the prairie vibes but like 70s and I was just like but that like the ugly green carpet looked amazing yeah I think that stuff is pretty cool like I think it just yeah some things I will say like some I like some ugly stuff but yeah it is still very new subjective ugly subjective is very subjective it is very new that is yeah it's extremely new where i'm like this is so old it's like 20 years old yeah exactly. it's from the year 2000 well no this family had been ruling over korea for like 500 years more than 500 years and japan comes in and they're just like bye and that's it so one of the like most powerful symbols of Korean sovereignty and independence was always this royal palace, and it was called Gyeongbokgung, and it was built in Seoul in 1395 by the Chosen Dynasty. Soon after assuming power, though, Japan's colonial government force tore down over a third of the complex's historic buildings, right, and the remaining structures were just turned into tourist attractions for Japanese visitors. Whoa. And this reminded me, I don't know if you were on this bonus episode where we did book club and we were talking about, um, like, imperialism and tourism and how they're linked. I may have missed uh, the tourism one. For some reason, there were, like, two episodes of the book club where, like, I just had a migraine. And I feel like, I don't know why. Yeah. It wasn't because I'm afraid of book club. No, you don't have to be afraid of book club. It's a safe place. <laughs> no, I make it sound like I wasn't. Like, I just, it happened to be those episodes. It not did, random yeah. Them, but, but you read the chapter, I did right? read the chapter, and It I, was in the book um, Against the Written Word by Ian Sononius. And yeah. he makes a parallel how tourism is a new way of exporting culture abroad, and now the middle class is the tourism army who, much like the military armies of the past, will go colonize places with their presence. However, unlike the military days of yore, the middle class will pay to colonize it themselves. Yeah, it was very interesting because going to... Because I had not really ever been on, like, a real, like, vacation as an adult. Mm -hmm. And, like, going to... Like, I had never been to, like, another country. 
and just like going to tourist spots blew my mind. Yeah. Like, cause you know, I'm from a tourist state, like in Colorado. So I was used to like local touristy stuff, but like international tourism blew my mind. Yeah, pretty wild. And it is interesting that Japan did this intentionally. They're like, we're going to turn these into tourist attractions for Japanese visitors here in Korea. Like, this is ours. We have access to all of this. And it kind of reminds me also of the United States with Hawaii. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which we have an episode about. If you guys haven't heard it, it's Blue Hawaii is the name of the episode. Yeah. It, it seems like it really, like, colonialism re- really is tied you know, one to like capitalism. And then it's almost like a domino effect of one country colonizes another. And then all the other countries are like, oh shit, we got to do this too. It's like a race against time to colonize. And it's like a monopolizing effect. Yeah. Like a, like an evil uh, death race. Yes. So from 1910 to 1945, you know, all of this is going on, and Japan is implementing those modernization efforts we talk about, but they also are cycling, like, socially and politically between periods of relative openness to Korean culture and just the total repression of the Korean people in every way imaginable. So this one writer had a grandfather who lived in Korea under Japanese colonial control, and this writer says, many historians cite the so-called modernization of Korea by Japan as the reason for Korea's post-war prosperity. But the Japanese police, factories, and trains were designed only to more easily take Korean timber, rice, fish, coal, and cotton to Japan, which we talked about, right? And he says in his grandfather's book about his life with his wife, he says, he casually noted that his Japanese superiors represented his work as their own. He smuggled rice and as the ration was too small to feed his family. Even when they had almost no food, though, he bragged about my grandmother's skill at cooking. So he's talking about this. He's like, yeah, I worked doing this. And my bosses were just like, yeah, we, we did that, not you. So there's kind of a little Marxist class kind of thing going on there. And then also he's like, yeah, I had to like smuggle rice out of my job because the rations they gave Korean people to live on were not enough. So also in the first decade of the occupation, Koreans were not allowed to publish newspapers or form any political groups. Uh, schools and universities also eventually forbade speaking Korean and emphasized manual labor and loyalty to the emperor for Korean people. Public places also adopted Japanese and there was an edict to make films in Japanese. All films had to be in Japanese. It also became a crime to teach history from non-approved texts and authorities burned over 200,000 Korean historical documents, essentially wiping out like the entire historical record of Korea. Yeah, it seems like that is kind of like the the textbook example of colonialism where you kind of erase the culture. Like I think about like with like native indigenous people here, like they weren't allowed to like speak their name, you know, language. They were supposed to go to American schools. We even stole their children via weird adoptions. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. Or like in other countries that have done colonial, that's a, a very common thing to be like, no history books. We're teaching you the history. I mean, I feel like history and education is a is one of the most powerful tools of control that government has. And that's why there's been so many laws now, these like anti, like don't say gay bills, like mm-hmm. in Florida and stuff, or like how, like textbooks are a huge, huge issue because if you can like erase history from kids, you can make them into adults that will comply with your culture and believe everything and I think about that so much with things that I just 
assumed were true about other countries that it's not until I really did deep digging and I'm like oh I can find documents on our own government websites where our government acknowledges that they made this up and lied to us but and you would never hear about that in high school you would never and I still meet people today who are like I think this thing is true and I'm like that is factually incorrect and here is the source to prove otherwise but it's just it's so true when you control the narrative you control people yeah and I think about like my I just very very lucked out in my weird education system that was like somehow kind of woke in this like small Colorado town where it's like in high school like for our senior history class we read the the first like four chapters of a people's history right which is really cool it actually like it's all factual you know it's like you know which we had never like you know we had had like talking about like events and stuff, but that was the first time we really put it into a perspective of is the United States way the best way, which I feel like is like now, like, you know, it's really important for people to tell their kids like the way that the United States has done stuff has always been cool and chill and good and don't think about anything else and if we made a boo-boo oh whoopsies wasn't that bad wasn't that bad i mean i think i saw that there's like schools now in the south that are trying to teach that um that slavery was actually good for the slaves and enslaved people actually benefited from it and you're just like Like what the fuck some fucking song of the south shit yes it is super super fucked up but it's so true it's like yeah when you teach history this way it really affects people's politics people's beliefs systems how people relate to each other what people think is okay it is a really powerful thing that's why um one of my friends says that they hate nonfiction because they think it's all dishonest because there's no such thing as nonfiction. so everything you present as though it is fact is always told with some sort of bias and if you're not acknowledging the bias you're doing a disservice by actively lying yeah i i think there's like more nuance to that i think that you can have nonfiction that gets very close to like well it's, yeah it's obviously like a sensational but, thing to prove a but, point you know, but i think the, it's interesting to consider there is that trope that um winners make the history yeah you the know winner makes the history yeah or like writes the history book. is written by the winner yeah. yes that yeah. is that is the trope That's i am thinking of but yeah i think that like one of the markers of colonialism is that you have like in order to do a colonialism you have to suppress the culture yes totally so in 1938 also koreans were encouraged to take japanese names and the exclusive use of japanese language was introduced in schools so going along with that and 84 percent of korean people at this time took on japanese names because people who lacked Japanese names weren't recognized by the colonial bureaucracy, so they were shut out of everything from mail delivery to ration cards. So they, Japan was like, you can choose this if you want, but also, like, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, you have to do this or you won't get ration cards. I feel like um, conservatives do this a lot, where they're like, you can do anything you want. You have a choice, and that's the thing, too. Like, and the choice- You choose where you work. You choose your job, and you're like, not really. You know, you have very limited opportunities for choice under capitalism and also all labor is coerced because the alternative is you die. Yeah. It's like, well, you don't have to work. And it's like, well, I do if I want to live. Exactly. You don't have to, like, you don't like it here. Get out. And it's like, how? How? Yeah. (laughs) Very expensive and not every country wants us. 
So during this occupation, Japan also took over all of Korea's labor and land. So nearly 100,000 Japanese families did end up settling in Korea with land that they were given by the Korean, uh, by the Japanese government. That also seems to be another... Settler colonialism thing. Yeah, where you give people in your own country access to land. Yeah, they're like, come here, we'll give you land, right? So 100,000 Japanese families did this and they cut down trees by the millions and they also planted a bunch of non-native species. And a lot of people who are Korean were like, whoa, like, I don't even recognize Korea anymore because there's different trees here. It's a totally different landscape. I don't even know where I am. And nearly 725,000 Korean workers were made to work in Japan and Japan's other colonies. Whoa. Yeah, so they were used as a, a labor force. And also Shinto shrines, originally intended for Japanese families, they soon also became places of forced worship for Koreans. And according to historian Donald N. Clark, the colonial government made Koreans worship the gods of Imperial Japan, including dead emperors and the spirits of war heroes who had helped them conquer Korea earlier in the century. Ugh. Yeah, and if you're wondering, uh, yes, this does all, I believe, qualify as cultural genocide. Yeah, I mean, it's, like, here when I think about, like, the monuments or, like, statues to, like, confederate. Yes. I'm just, like, oh, my God. Yeah. So, while this is all happening, there's obviously some dissent. Uh, resistance groups are kind of forming. They're pushing for Korean independence. In 1919, the March 1st movement called for Korean independence formally, and more than 1,500 demonstrations broke out uh, around Korea. Oh, wow. So the protests were, of course, brutally suppressed by the Japanese at the time. But this idea of a free and independent Korea caught on in people's minds. And today, March 1st is still known as a no national holiday in South Korea in honor of those protests for independence. Oh, wow. So some Koreans also would protest quietly. They would do things like they'd refuse to speak Japanese or they would refuse to change their names no matter how hard it made life for them. Or if they did change the names, they would do it in a way that like discreetly would honor their family history still. So there was some pushback happening, obviously, from the beginning of this. Then uh, we have the World War II thing happen, 1939 to 1945. So in 1939, an underground group called the Party of 3000 emerged, and this was a group of students that were trying to undermine the Japanese military because the Japanese military was constricting them to fight in World War II on behalf of Japan. Oh my god. Yeah. So Japan also during this time, like, forced hundreds of thousands of Korean women into life as comfort women who are famously sexual slaves who served in military brothels. They just did all these really gnarly things during World War II. Um, and also... You know, World War II, 1945, what happens after World War II is going to affect Korea a lot because the effects of World War II were massive on Japan. So Japan obviously was famously allied with Germany and Italy during World War II. And of course, we all know what happened, right? They all lost. This is all the stories we hear about the USSR defeating Hitler and like the USSR killing 2.8 million Nazi soldiers. This is all relevant to what happens to Japan and Korea in the aftermath. Uh, also, anyone who probably watched Oppenheimer or at least paid attention in history class should know that despite the war being basically over, the United States still decided to drop nuclear weapons on Japan as a show of force, probably to frighten our allies in that war, the USSR, into remembering their place. Uh, which is wild to think of the time that the U.S. and the USSR were actual allies in World War II. Yeah, I think people forget that because basically, like, the Allied forces were like, we need Russia for the, I'm like, Western Front, wait, Eastern Front. Yeah. 
I like I like how my sense of direction is so bad. I have to do the acronyms to remember which directions I'm are north, which. I'm northeast, southwest. Never, never eat waffles. Oh, I mine is never eat squishy worms. Oh, what? That's what I was taught. Oh, I like that better. Never eat soggy waffles must be a California thing. Yeah. Is is squishy worms Colorado? Do we have a cultural divide here? Oh, I didn't know this. Or is Colorado just cold California? Or is California hot Colorado? Mm. (laughs) Oh, you don't like that. I don't like that. (laughs) No. If there's anything I know, it's that I am a Californian and a Leo, damn it. Well, I'm a, I'm a Coloradan and a Leo. Well, that's okay. California, I'm just saying. We're like the Leos of the states. Um, I'm kind of like um, like a, the snowboarder. <laughs> like Leo, where I'm like, oh, yeah. Like, You're like chill. You're like a chill broski. But I want the attention for my sick kickflips. I don't think that's snowboarding. I think that's skateboarding. Snowboarding kickflips. Snowflips. So I'm doing snowflips over here. <laughs> So, all right. So this is the weird alliance between the U.S. and the USSR. Like, allies in name only is what some people say. And we talked about this on a previous episode, but the thing I just think is really interesting is how right after World War II, everyone was like, the USSR defeated Hitler. And then, like, 30 years later, everyone was like, the United States defeated Hitler. And that's because of the United States propaganda campaign to be like, we beat Hitler, you know? And, but, and the USSR is like, Wait, what? Yeah, the USSR, like, we literally killed almost three million Nazis. Like, what are you talking about? Wow, yeah. Yeah. I weirdly had a very, like, I remember as a, I want to say sophomore in high school, definitely did the deep dive. We did, like, uh, the Russian Revolution and World War II. So I weirdly knew all this stuff. I would say, actually, this is my hot take, history class, extremely important. So important. So important. Um... I got kicked out of a lot of history classes in high school because they'd say something. I'd be like, that's not how that happened. And I'd, like, fight with a history teacher because we'd be like, that's not accurate. Here's the actual thing that happened. We had all these, like, fucked up books that were doing the propaganda thing. But, you know, the – this is just an aside – you know that book, The Black Book of Communism? Mm-mm. So it's this book that this guy wrote that's supposed to be like, here are all the millions of people killed by communism. And first of all, a lot of Jewish people have been like, this book is extremely anti-Semitic because it kind of does this weird Holocaust thing that's like not good. Ugh. Like this book is really anti-Semitic. So a lot of Jewish people are like, no, I hate this book. Um, also, though, that book literally counts Nazis as victims of communism. What? Yeah, they're like, communism killed millions of people, and it's like 2.8 million Nazis. Oh, God. Yeah, no, it's wild. It's a wild ride. Um, but anyway, so, oh. whatever. Um, this all happens, and the United States is like, even though the USSR is technically our ally right now, we need them to always remember their place. So even though the war is about to end, Japan's about to surrender, we're still going to drop the nuclear weapons on their civilians and murder Hundreds of thousands of innocent people. So, so fucked. Yes. And I really want to take a second to point this out here because I know people know this, but I feel like people don't really internalize what this means. The United States remains the only country in the world that has ever used nuclear weapons on another country. Yeah. And when you think about the, like, horrific effects of nuclear war, like, it it should make your spine shudder. Oh, it's, it's horrifying. Like, even if you see just... Some pictures, some movies about it. Like, even just the little, like, iceberg, you know, yeah. tip is 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 sh- shockingly, like, horrific. Right. And just, I- like, even, like, 
little bits it's of really it. really bad and r and dotty roy wrote about it i read this in high school her writing about the effects of nuclear war and it's it's disturbingly beautiful and poetic how she talks about it but i think if anybody ever wants to read something well, like that she does a good job of doing it yeah it's like people think like oh the worst thing that could happen would be zombie apocalypse you know like we have yeah. all these things in our pop culture but actually to me what that represents is the horrors of nuclear the potential of nuclear war right and it is so what it's so funny to me to think that like my mom because she's a boomer she's like oh yeah when i was a kid we had nuclear drills where we'd get under the desk and even as like a six-year-old i was like i don't think this is gonna do anything and she's like yeah every day i thought we were gonna get vaporized yeah and i'm just like it's so wild to think that that was such a staple of American life for so many years. Well, bomb shelters in people's backyards. Yeah, like I think about that movie with Brendan Fraser. I love that movie. That movie kind of rocks, yeah, actually. Yeah, what was it called? I don't remember. Uh, oh, our God. listeners will have to tell us what yeah. movie this is called. But it anyway, like, it's so wild to think that that is not... There's so... It's... Our, our place in the world has become such that there's so many things to worry about that we... That nuclear war is on the back burner. It's true. Um, I also want to point out, though, that, like, statistically, the country we should be most terrified of having nukes is us, the United States. No, it's like, you know how they're like, the person you should be most afraid of is your spouse? Yes, Murdering it's like that. you? Like, the, you are most, or you're, you are most likely to get murdered by someone you know, It not a stranger. Not a stranger. It's someone you know. And I think the country we should all be most concerned about having nuclear weapons is the United States. And we're always so concerned about which countries have nukes. Like, were there weapons of mass destruction in Iraq during that war? Uh, What is North Korea doing with 50 nuclear warheads? Why does China have 400 of them? Are these other countries going to kill us all? But by contrast, the United States has over 5,000 nuclear warheads and is the only country with a proven track record of being willing to use them on civilian populations. It reminds me of, like, that anecdote, the person you're most likely to shoot is yourself. Yeah. Yes. Uh, the only country actually in the world that has more nuclear weapons than us is Russia, but they have never used them. And it's really, really close to the same amount as us. And yeah, the country, there, there's like an arms race, right? I yeah. feel like... We both I, have around 5,000. They yeah. have slightly more than us, but they've never used them and we have used them. Like, but don't they literally just have like four more or something? It's like a hundred more, oh, but it's like a just low hundred At like 5,000, you know, you're like, we've got 5,000 some odd. They have 5,000 some odd hundred more. God, and uh, I mean, I feel like, uh, and like a thousand nukes would just destroy the earth. Oh, like, I feel like like 10 nukes would destroy the earth. I don't even know. Yeah, because I mean, you just, this is grim, but it's like, you just need one nuke per city. Yeah, no, it's fucked up. Um, The country with the next highest amount of nuclear warheads compared to us in China, or us in Russia is China. And we have over 10 times as many as they do. So they only have 50. No, no, they have... Oh, wait. Uh, they have, like, 400. Gotcha. Yeah. Um, so, whatever. The U.S. famously, horrifically, drops nuclear weapons on civilians in Hiroshima and Nagasaki uh, at the end of World War II. By this point, Japan was already not doing great following World War II. Uh, so, by the time World War II comes to an end, Japan is devastated. Uh, and, similarly, Korea is pretty wa- rocked by the war, too, as a Japanese colony. So all of this is important in setting up what happens next. So after Imperial Japan surrenders to Allied forces August 15th, 1945, the 35-year Japanese occupation of Korea finally comes to an end. 
Wow. Yes. So the United States and our one-time ally, the USSR, hey, end Japanese rule in Korea. And we're trying to figure out what exactly we're supposed to do with this newly freed country. God forbid you let the people govern themselves. I don't know why this is such an issue that, like, the world will never let a country just handle things themselves. Uh, But whatever. So the United States, with the UN's backing, temporarily divides Korea into two occupation zones. The North is going to be under the trusteeship of the USSR, and the South is going to be under the sphere of influence of the United States. And this is supposed to be temporary. They're like, we're going to do this. Uh, Russia, you're going to try to just take care of the North. The United States, you're going to try to take care of the South. This is temporary. And then we're going to reunify Korea when we figure out how they're going to lead themselves. They're going to be an independent nation that takes control of themselves, but they're going to have to set up provisional governments and get things organized. So in the meantime, just for now, USSR, you're going to kind of handle the North. United States, you're going to handle the South. So, like, just what happened with, like, East and West Germany? And just what happened with Vietnam. Mm. But that was before the war. Yeah. Um, so, this happens. And in September 1945, Lieutenant General John R. Hodge establishes a military government to administer the southern region of Korea, South Korea. And this includes a place we're going to talk about coming up, Jeju Island. So in December 1945, U.S. representatives met with some people from the Soviet Union, some representatives from there, and the United Kingdom to work out this joint trusteeship. But there was no consensus over how to proceed. So the U.S. took what they called the Korean question to the United Nations for further deliberation. So on November 14th, 1947, the United Nations General Assembly passed U.N. Resolution 112, which called for a general election on May 10th, 1948, under this UN kind of special council on Korea, which is abbreviated to UNTCOC. Really unfortunate <laughs> abbreviation. So UNTCOC supervision. So this is what's up. So everybody's like, we don't know kind of what to do from here now that it's divided. Nobody can figure out how to proceed. And the UN is like, we're just going to have uh, a general election there then. But you got to remember, the UN really heavily sides with the United States not with Russia. So the the UN is more of a presence on the US kind of side. So this is kind of a win for the US, right? So then we get to this issue of North Korea versus South Korea. So 1946 to 1948, Korea remains divided and locals are growing antsy. They're like, why is our country split in half? What's going on? Why aren't there any steps being taken to just give us our country back. Like, why are these people still in control of everything? This division was supposed to be temporary. They were supposed to leave, uh, they were supposed to eventually become a fully united and free independent Korea. But instead, South Korea found itself completely under American military rule. And this just makes me think of what would happen a few years later in Vietnam. The U.S. divided the country into two smaller countries because they were like, we can't control North Korea or North Vietnam, so we're just going to maintain total control over this other region by calling it something new and giving it a different government. The only difference was the Vietnam situation happened during the war and the Korea situation happened after the war. But surprise, just like in Vietnam, locals did not love this. They did not like this. Now, those elections the U.N. wanted to hold, the North was like, The UN is basically just the United States. Absolutely fucking not. That's not okay. Uh, So the UN is like, fine, we'll just do it in the South then. Don't worry, you guys do your own thing. So in 1947, the United Nations, oh, it was called the Temporary Commission of Korea, UNTCOC. They're like, all right, we're going to start holding elections in South Korea. And locals are like, wait, 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 wait. Why, why? 
doesn't that just mean that you think that North Korea and South Korea are going to be two different countries forever now and this divide isn't actually temporary and you have no interest or goal in reuniting us and letting us be one sovereign nation? That's what that means, right? And the UN's like, I don't know. And the military in the United States is like, maybe just don't worry about it. And people are pissed. They're like, no, we're worried. We are highly worried. You're supposed to give us back our country. Like, why is this even happening, right? So they go from being totally controlled by Japan. They were first partially controlled by China, then totally controlled by Japan. Now they're getting controlled by the United States. And they're just like, this is not okay. And you're supposed to give us our country back and nobody is doing this. So South Korea starts to fight back. In February and March of 1948, the Workers' Party of South Korea organizes a general strike to protest the UN and the United States, kind of refusing to give South Korea back. Just like, this shouldn't be happening. And the next month in April, they launch a full-on insurgency. They start attacking police stations in South Korea, and this triggers this really harsh crackdown by the U.S. military-led South Korean leadership. And in August 1948, the South Korean government, the First Republic of Korea, backed by the U.S. military, controlled by the U.S. military, begins to violently suppress these protests and these uprisings. And by November, they declare martial law in South Korea and begin trying to eradicate rebel forces, meaning killing South Koreans fighting for their own independence. So, this is all going on in Korea. We've got other stuff happening around the world in 1949 that's kind of important to the psyche of the United States. Basically, communism is thriving globally, and the United States, a country where capitalism is obviously as American as apple pie, is flipping out. Communism spreading to the U.S. would obviously be the end of a bunch of rich guys wealth hoarding, right? And the president and Congress don't want to see their bank accounts or their heads on a shopping block, so communism remains the United States' biggest existential threat. Uh, also worth noting, communists often identify the link between imperialism, which is what got Korea into this whole mess they didn't want to be in in the first place, uh, being intrinsically tied to capitalism. So this is bad news for the United States too. They're like, yeah, we're actively doing it. We're doing imperialism and capitalism and we need this. And the communists are like, we know what you're doing. We can see it. So the United States is like, fuck. So on August 29th, 1949, the Soviets detonate their first atomic bomb. They're testing it. And Klaus Fuchs, who's a physicist who helped develop the United States atomic bomb program, he leaked the blueprints of the fat man atomic bomb to the Soviets. That was the name of one of the bombs that was dropped in mm. Japan. And this Cold War paranoia is in full swing. Everybody's like, wow, did this get leaked? What's going on? Ah! Then on October 1st, 1949, famous communist revolutionary Mao Zedong announces the creation of the People's Republic of China following the defeat of the U.S.-supported Chinese nationalists there. Wow. So the U.S. is getting a lot of blows. They're like, the Soviets have an atomic weapon. Everybody seems really happy about cap or uh, communism. Everybody's calling us out for shit we're actually doing. There was just a re revolution in China that defeated our military-backed kind of people we were rooting for. And now Chairman Mao's announcing the creation of this whole new version of China that's communist. So Mao promptly sends thousands of Chinese troops to help aid North Korea because they're like, hey, you guys are under USSR kind of guidance, leadership, trusteeship. You're our communist allies. So we're going to help support you. And his main goal in doing this was, he was like, the South Koreans need to be freed from U.S. imperialist rule. And the way we're going to do that is we're going to help North Korea do it. And North Korea is going to reunite Korea for once and for all, free of Western influence as an independent country. And we're going to help you. So that's what Mao had going on. So all of this is happening. 
when meanwhile people in South Korea are like, we don't want these weird UN elections. We don't want the United States here. We want to be free and independent. And the United States is like, oh shit, Mao wants you to be free and independent too and just sent you a whole bunch of military aid. North Korea wants you to be free and independent too. Like, this is bad for us, right? So the United States is kind of like backed into a corner. So South Koreans at this time, they're fighting for their own independence. They're fighting for freedom from the American, American military forces controlling the government there. And the USA is like, you know what? I don't actually think there are South Korean rebellions. I think it's just the USSR up to their old commie tricks because I think the people in South Korea are actually really happy to be under our control. So this is kind of what they tell everybody. Uh, and the South Koreans are like, no, it's not the Soviets. Like, no, we just actually are tired of, of influence in our country and we just want to be our own country again. And the USA just like wouldn't tell the world that South Korea really fucking hated having Americans there. Um, kind of have you seen that meme that's like, you are being freed, please do not resist, and it's like a robot with like a bunch of weapons? No. Yeah. It, it, yeah, it seems like this, it's like, I think like people in the United States would more understand, it's like, if, let's just say a foreign country, I don't know, like, uh. Say Canada. Canada. That feels funny to me. Can I was thinking of, Canada was just like, okay, we're splitting Los Angeles into North and South now. Canada gets the north and, uh... Mexico gets the south. Yeah. Honestly, I'd be into it. Or Holland. Just yeah, a, a random... Just a random country that like, you're like, I don't speak Dutch. What? Yeah, or like, it's Canada and Holland. And, uh, good luck, South LA. You are Holland? Yeah, Dutch. you're Holland. You're Dutch now. You're Dutch. Yeah, exactly. North LA, you are Canadian. South LA, you are Dutch. People would be like, what the fuck? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And we, like... I don't think most people have a ton of any personal animosity towards the Canadians or the Dutch, but they'd be like, what the fuck, man? Yeah, you would get a lot of personal animosity real fast. You're like, I am not putting maple syrup on my waffles. No. Yeah. I don't know what I can... Do you like I'm so American? I'm like, what do Canadians do? They got the hockey. They got hockey. They got... They like the syrup. That one was true. But the, we eat syrup on the, waffles, Well, the too. maple leaf is on their flag. Oh, they got poutine. Oh, poutine is good. Poutine is good. Yeah. Uh, you know, and, uh, the Dutch, they got tulips. Yes, they, they do. They do. And they have houses on stilts and windmills. Yes. Yeah. I love that's how American we are. Yeah, no, I know. It's painful. Uh, but, like, people, like, even if it was that, people would be so fucking pissed. Yeah. People, like, they're, like, people would be, like, people would be, like, we are going full, like, we are... Like, people lose their minds. Yes, yeah, so this is basically what's happening in South Korea. So they're really mad, you know, that the United States keeps going to other countries, destroying everything, then claiming they implemented democracy or something, but they've really just made every country that they've been in a weakened puppet state forced to carry out the will of the United States for the United States financial gain. Uh, so it's just like that. And the U.S.'s line, obviously, is they're helping to free South Korea. And... Uh, they just wanted to make it look like South Koreans protest to their military control there. Our military control there was some weird Soviet communist aggression. Even though it was, yes, just indigenous people fighting against imperialism. And these rebellions, despite the United States trying to pass them off like they weren't really happening or it was something else, they spread throughout South Korea. And they did eventually reach this little island of Jeju, where suppression by the South Korean government under U.S. military backing was particularly brutal. Like, it was bad everywhere. Jiju got the worst of it. Um, in addition to tens of thousands of deaths, atrocities, and war crimes occurred throughout Jiju, 
And in Jiju in particular is where historians are like, a genocide occurred here. So this is where we get into the Jiju uprisings. And this is where it gets really gnarly. So Jiju is often described as looking similar to Hawaii. If you've never seen pictures or been there, there's beach resorts, there's volcanic peaks, there's citrus trees. It's beautiful. And it's also relatively isolated from mainland Korea because it's an island. And this means that after the Japanese surrendered during World War II, Jiju experienced some kind of peace following that. Following the Japanese departure from Jiju, the people there formed people's committees, local autonomous councils that were tasked with coordinating the transition towards Korean independence. So in Jiju in particular, they're like, we're doing Korean independence. Yes, great. And they were kind of left alone to do this. So Jiju became this hotbed of working towards Korean independence and unification. So when the American military government arrived in Jiju in late 1945 and took control under this thing called the United States Army Military Government of Korea, that was like the official name for it, the Jiju People's Council was the only existing government on the island, and they were doing a pretty good job. By like late 1946, the People's Committee was under the control of the Workers' Party of South Korea, who encouraged the people of Jiju to establish their own military, their own political committees, and their own mass organizations. And the U.S. military governor, who was the governor under that United States Army military government in Korea, the name of it officially, John R. Hodge, in October 1947 was describing Jiju and said it was truly a communal area that is peacefully controlled by the People's Committee. Wow, yeah. You know what I realized? I have heard of this island before because of the one of the K-dramas I watch. Oh, yeah? They went to Jeju Island. Yeah. And it was like, it was like a beach town yes type of situation where they're like we're going on vacation here and it is a now i think it's like a top honeymoon destination for yeah they were talking and like uh very beautiful they went to go look at like a a temple yes like it was like a it was like like what i would think of is like going to hawaii or you know puerto rico someplace like that to like go on vacation exactly so By 1947, the Jiju residents were active in protesting those UN elections that were proposed for the following year. You know, when everybody in South Korea starts being like, we don't like this, this just feels like it's the, you're making it permanent that there's a North Korea and a South Korea, and this is a UN thing, and you're just continuing to assert US, like, guidance and dominance here. When that was all happening throughout South Korea, Jiju was really active because they were like, yeah, this is not what we want. And the Workers' Party of South Korea planned these gatherings on March 1st, 1947, to denounce the elections. But military forces, which were again backed by the USA, were showing up to try to disperse the crowds. And when this happened in Jiju, the military kind of personnel backed by the US came out to be like, go home, go away, like no protest, no protest. The Jiju residents came out more. They were like, go get more people to come. Like, no, you don't get to push us around. You don't get to tell us what to do. So more people showed up and the police fired indiscriminate warning shots, some of which went into the crowd, and killed six civilians, including a six-year-old child. Oh, my God. Yeah, so this was bad. And uh, members of the Workers' Party of South Korea in Jeju were also arrested. So this kind of starts, some people think, the first kind of armed conflict between Jeju and these U.S.-backed military forces. And on March 8th, 1947, seven days later, a crowd of around a thousand demonstrators gathered at the jail to demand the release of the party members who were arrested. So they threw rocks and they tried to rush the jail demanding their release and the police inside just started firing into the crowd and they killed five people. And residents of Jiju demanded the military government backed by the United States take action against these police officers who fired into the crowd. 
Instead, though, 400 more police officers were flown in from the mainland, along with members of an extreme right-wing paramilitary group known as the Northwest Youth League. Have you heard of these people? No. Okay. So, what is the Northwest Youth League? Well, while all of this is happening in South Korea, North Korea is being run in a socialist fashion with help from the USSR. And the Democratic People's Republic of Korea, or the DPRK as we call it today, is officially formed. So in 1948, communist and former guerrilla fighter Kim Il-sung is made the first premier of the DPRK. And that same year, Kim Jong-un's grandfather, Kim Il-sung, formed the Korean People's Army in February. So same guy, right? The army was mostly made up of Korean communist guerrillas who had previously served with the Chinese People's Liberation Army, but were advised by Soviet personnel. And I didn't realize this, but it totally makes sense why Kim Jong-un today is so widely respected in North Korea, because he comes from this legacy of these leaders in North Korea who were struggling against Western imperialist forces. Mm. This is his whole family. Like, his grandpa did all this stuff. Mm. And I didn't really realize that. So... Also, there's, like, a weird double standard, I think, when we're, like, white countries have kings and queens. We're, like, haha, that's quaint. Look at them pass things down from year to year. But then when we see it happen in other countries, we're, like, why is there just one family in charge of everything, you know? It's, like, that's here, too. Yeah, that's also here, too. That's because like, there's these, like, privately owned businesses that are owned by families for, like, ever. And they just have, like, these massive lobbying groups that control Congress. I mean, I, this might be a hot take, but I would dare say that the U.S. is kind of an oligarchy. No, that's that's not a hot take. I think that's accurate. Even if you look at, like, the Bush administration. Yeah, you know? it seems like very, like... The Kennedys. It seems like very, like, political mobster mm-hmm. style. But it's, like... But because it's, like, politics, it has this air of uh, respectability. Whereas if you were just a Tony Soprano, you'd be like, you're a gangster. Yeah. But because you're a politician, you doing all these weird favor, power grab things corporate handouts it's it's fine you know right that's doing that's doing politics not being like uh we're not running a protection racket uh, right exactly so i just thought this was interesting i'm like oh i didn't realize that about kim jong-un and like his family legacy that these were communist guerrilla fighters when north korea was formed so Communist policies that were implemented in North Korea, they actually were, even according to, like, mainstream historians who are, like, more conservative, everyone actually says that they were really popular with the bulk of the North's labor and peasant population. So poor people really loved all of the communist measures. But middle-class Koreans and upper-class Koreans fled during this period to South Korea by any means they could. No class consciousness with the middle class there. So... Also worth noting, people during this time left for other reasons, too. Like, everybody who left wasn't just like, I'm a greedy asshole who doesn't want to share. Uh, No, like, some people left for logistical reasons. They wanted to be reunited with families that were in the South, for example. Whatever. Not everyone who left North Korea for the South was just some asshole rich guy. But some, some were. And the Northwest Youth League was a group of these types of people. The adult children of those rich assholes, the middle class or the wealthy people who left North Korea after having their property confiscated by communists and came to South Korea, especially ready to fight on behalf of American pro-capitalist imperialist forces. So these are the people that fled North Korea and joined the Northwest Youth League in the South. And they were especially brutal when it came to fighting in South Korea. Survivors of interactions with the Northwest Youth League gave accounts of torture, torturing children, mass murder, 
these were the bad dudes. So if you were protesting in South Korea, if you were protesting in the United States, and the Northwest Youth League showed up in your town, it was going to be bad. It was going to be really, really, really brutal. By the end of 1949, an estimated 300 members of the Northwest Youth League had joined the local police, while around 200 more became members of local governments or merchants in town. So they really showed up and dug their heels then. It kind of reminds me of, like, how Proud Boys, like, chose, like, Portland, Oregon to go, yes. like, kind of, like, infiltrate a little bit. Not, yes. But, you know, like, as a base of operations, like... Or, like, you know, MAGA types, you know, Proud Boy types will go to places where they would never go otherwise just to fuck with people. Well, these people did this because they were like, communism ruined my life because I can't be rich and selfish anymore. So they fled the North where the communists were and they came to the South because they're like, I love capitalism and the United States. And the United not States because, is in charge of Yeah, not because they had a bone to pick with anyone in particular. No, but then when the United States was like, oh my God, all these workers are like rebelling against us and like demanding rights. Ugh. These people, this Northwest Youth League was like, we know exactly how to end them. We don't want them becoming com- commie scum too that takes things away from rich people, right? This is the move. This is the vibe of these people in this place, right? So these are the adult children of people, like rich kids. These are rich kids. These are like the kind of rich kid uh, white guys who join the army because they want to kill people for fun kind of a vibe. Oh, uh, oh, it's so funny. Someone was just talking about, they're like, I know someone who married someone like that, who literally joined the army because they were so rich that they, they wanted to do exactly that yes and this is like i knew somebody whose brother had become really rich in the late 80s and early 90s off of telephone systems and he made so much money and he got so bored he became an lapd no an lasd sheriff's deputy for fun just to mess with people yeah yeah so these are these kinds of people and they are like we hate communism because communism made us give things up ew the worst so these uh uprisings that were happening in South Korea, they were fighting for their independence, but they also were opposing U.S. imperialism. And U.S. imperialism is directly linked to capitalism. So they were de facto leftists as a result of that. Anybody fighting U.S. imperialism is automatically a leftist. And who's somebody who's, if even not consciously a communist or a socialist, sympathetic. Sympathetic because they're all, their enemy is American imperialism, Western imperialism, capitalist imperialism. So These Northwest Youth League asshole rich kids came to South Korea looking for a fight for anybody who pushed back against U.S. imperialism there, right? And these people, according to Lee Woon Bang, who was a former Labor Party organizer at the time, these people were hoodlums, criminals, and thugs, just of the rich kid variety, basically. Mm. Yeah, so these were entitled, bloodthirsty rich kids with the freedom to do whatever they wanted And the U.S.-backed South Korean kind of military-controlled thing called them in to help fight, to help squash these protests. Gotcha. Like, like, like a, like if, like a, like a right-wing militia. They were a right-wing militia, exactly. So these guys showing up in Jiju is not good, because remember, Jiju, they're like, we got our own little utopia building here. We're working on everything. Like, we are really true believers in the cause. Very sweet, kind, like doe-eyed like socialists trying to work towards a common good and then these guys show up in town so back to the rebellions february 1948 
The Workers' Party of South Korea plans a general strike, which we talked about earlier, to oppose the presence of the UN and USA there, and to oppose what they see is the solidification of the division of Korea with these elections. And at this point, there were at least 60,000 members of the Workers' Party in Jeju, and at least 80,000 active supporters. So even if you weren't part of the Workers' Party, you were actively supporting their mission. And they all went on strike, all 140,000 of them. So they also would engage in open conflict with the police and military forces. Like these were revolutionaries, right? And on April 3rd, 1948, something happens that most people cite as being the official start of the Jeju Rebellion. So on this day, military forces fire on protesters who are out commemorating the Korean struggle against Japanese imperialism. So out doing this demonstration to be like, look at us fighting against Japan, blah, 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 blah. And the military forces just start shooting them. 500 worker party guerrilla fighters and 3,000 leftist sympathizers then attacked Northwest Youth League positions, as well as 11 of the 24 police stations on the island, killing 30 police officers in retaliation, specifically targeting those who were known to have previously collaborated with the Japanese government. Mm. So a Korean historian, John Merrill, explains a cycle of terror and counter-terror soon developed. Police and rightists brutalized the islanders who retaliated the best they could. So this, I think, is important context. You know, basically, the police and these right-wing military groups, militia groups, are just fucking with the people constantly over and over again, but they're not going to just sit down and take it. They're pissed, right? They've been under all this rule for so long, they're just like, no, we're fighting back. And the Islanders at one point did enter peace negotiations with the police. The police called for them. But the fighters were like, no, we want the entire police force disbanded. You don't even have the right to be here. We're not even sure why you're here. And the police just wanted the fighters to surrender themselves to the police. So it went absolutely nowhere. The U.S. military government then sent multiple police companies, each with 1,700 members in them, to Jiju as additional backup to squash the uprisings. Whoa. Yeah, and the guerrilla fighters, when this happened, they just retreated to the forest in the caves, like, out in nature, where they're like, we know this area, we're just gonna go live out here. And on April 29th, the non-military Jiju governor, who was not affiliated with the U.S. military people kind of controlling South uh, Korea, this governor abandoned his post and joined the guerrilla fighters out in the, the forest. Wow. Yeah. Uh, he was just like, uh-uh, this is not me. I'm not one of these people. I stand with the fighters. So lots of police officers also started to do the same. Because at this point, police officers who were South Korean, some of them became distraught over the atrocities they'd been forced to commit against their own people to squash these uprisings. And in response, the U.S. military provincial governor, William F. Dean, ordered a purge of sympathizers from the ranks of the Korean constab constabulary... Const constabulary constabulary uh yeah that thing and Cause, yeah because here i don't do we have constables here no because i think we just make them in other countries yeah because like i know like it's a thing in like britain but yeah, here like i'm like do you have like a sheriff i think probably places like there probably still are like you know how there's like townships here yes. or like i'm sure somebody's position in america is constable Another thing I gotta Google yeah. later. Um, so whatever. So after this, the U.S., though, they're really embarrassed. They're like, the governor just abdicated his position, and all of these police officers were like, fuck this, we're not doing this anymore, this is evil. And so, yeah, he was like, you gotta find everybody who's sympathetic to these 
these people in Jiju, and you got to kill them. So three sergeants were executed following this order. And by the time those May 10th elections took place that the UN had wanted, 214 people in Jiju had been killed by the U.S. military-backed police force or those creepy, creepy right-wing militia groups like the one I described that did really, really bad things. And they were, a lot of them were killed in bad deaths, okay? So during election week, the guerrillas cut telephone lines, destroyed bridges, and blocked roads with piles of stones to try to disrupt communication to try to keep the, the people from voting in this election. They were like, this is not a real election. This is not our election. If we vote in it, it's going to legitimize it. It's not a real election. And the Workers' Party Women's League tried to get residents to hide in the mountains so they wouldn't be forced to vote at gunpoint. And thousands of them did. Thousands of just regular people in Juju were like, yeah, I'm not voting in that and nobody's going to make me. Like, I stand for the independence of Korea. So they, like, went and hid in the woods, too. And then the U.S. employed these liaison aircraft things to try to arrest and kill villagers who escaped to those areas. What the fuck? Like, this reminds me of uh, us, quote-unquote, liberating Iraq. Yes. Any kind of liberation attempt that the U.S. does. Yeah, where it's just, like, you're not really liberating people you're just fucking with them yes and lots of election officials even refused to show up wow they were like no this is bad and we side with these people this shouldn't be happening you're right we don't want the un and the u.s military government taking control of south korea and we don't want korea to be permanently divided well it is a testament to uh not a testament it's like to me like the reason why all these cold like the cold war exists like the korean war vietnam war is because any existential threat to capitalism has to be eliminated. Yes. Even if it is not a physical threat, because to me, like, the biggest threat to control is ideas. Well, and that's even what the United States admitted when we're like, domino theory. One country falls to communism, every country falls to communism. Well, it's just like, I saw a TikTok today about the Overton window, and the Overton window is basically what kind of common society thinks is okay uh kind of like we would think uh it would be very extreme for a normal person to be like nazis are cool yeah like that's a very right-wing extremist racist point of view like an, right. an average person would be like bad yeah nazis are bad yes. yeah that yeah. is like the overton window that is just generally accepted yes 99.9 percent of people you meet would, yes would say that but they talk about the movement, like, the movement, like, what conservatives want is the Overton window. So what normal 99% of people thinks is acceptable to move to the right. Yes. And that is, like, why you hear things now about, uh, like, I think that you hear the most extreme things. Yeah. So people will think that, like, a less extreme things are okay yeah like uh for example we should put all trans people in jail where they're like so that moves the conversation to where maybe the normal conversation you know in the media is oh well trans people we're not going to put them in jail but they're still bad. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's, I can see that. Not, yeah, I'm not saying that's. I'm saying that's an example. Yeah, of like, somebody's gonna take a sound bite of Kenna saying that. Oh, oh my god! Now your now your platform for world domination, no! where you give everybody mansions, will be forever compromised no! by this sound. No, I'm, it's like what no, an no, example. I know what you mean. Yeah. But uh, you know, but to on the flip side, to 
capitalists, um, conservatives, like um, centrists, stuff like that, moving the Overton window left is actually harm. Is like the same. They have a huge fear of that where you're just like, oh, well, like they don't want a common conversation to be like, yeah, it's messed up when people come into your home and take your stuff. Yeah. And like control your life. Yeah. That you don't know. Well, or they try to say, well, that's what the communists do. Exactly. Where they're, it's just like. Where you're like, that doesn't even make sense. The goal of communism is for like, everybody to have their own home. That's why I think it's really important for more conversations to be had around stuff that we don't learn about in history class. Because it moves the conversation away from that really extremist bad position. Right. The bad positions, you know, that are in our society, like, you know. Well, I think also a thing is, like, when you learn about what the United States has been up to in other countries, you are less likely to just trust what they're doing now. Yeah, because, you know, maybe maybe they are right and the domino effect is true because, like, for a while people thought that America was going to become a communist country. Yeah. Like, that is why, like, the Red Scare with, like, Hollywood and stuff. There was, like, yeah. a lot of unionizing, like... You know, but and when when unions were at their highest point in the United States, worker wages were also at their highest point compared to bosses' wages. Yeah, so it those existential threats are very very scary to the to, bosses. To the bosses because mm-hmm. they're like the, that actually affects our bottom line, right? Which is you know to me like a normal thing would be to do like oh we gotta pay people more, we gotta treat people better to keep in power, but no like. Which to, is kind of the Europe approach, where they're yeah, like, we're still going to maintain a capitalist but to control, me, the but we're going to like, a little more. I am, I'm not, like, I'm kind of being dead serious when I'm like, the ultimate goal of capitalism is for one person to win. Yeah. Because that, if you think about taking all the resources, all the things, like, if you go with the Ayn Rand approach of, like, selfishness is good, well, the, ulti- the ultimate selfishness is to have everything for you. Yourself. Well, and even even people who love capitalism do critique its tendency towards monopoly, and that's ultimately the end goal of capitalism is the ultimate monopoly: one guy, one guy, a million. Ro- we were joking. One guy, million robots. Yep, that's it. So all of this is happening in Jeju, right? And it, during this election in South Korea, voter turnout in Jeju was the lowest out of everywhere in South Korea. So that tells you how important Jiju was to the resistance, resisting U.S. and U.N. forces and control, and how invested they were in seeing a unified, free Korea. And it was so low, in fact, that this um, U.N. kind of government that they were trying to set up there had two seats reserved for the Jiju province in the new National Assembly that they were creating. Those seats were just vacant because everyone there was like, no, not us. We're not included. And General Dean requested a U.S. Navy blockade of the island on May 11th so that sympathizers from the mainland would not be able to reach Jiju at all. So the U.S. Navy sent the USS John R. Craig to enforce the blockade after this happened. So by 1948, the South Korean government sent the 14th Regiment of the Korean Constabulary the police constabulary 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 uh to fight the protesters um but thousands of these troops just refused 
because they were like, I am not murdering the people of Jiju. That was their words. They're like, I will not do this. And they mutinied. They, in fact, killed a bunch of high-ranking officers, and they also killed a bunch of former Japanese collaborators that were in their army Whoa. with them. And they retreated into the woods and the mountains to hide as well, where they ended up setting up their own additional guerrilla fighting bases. Yeah. This, I mean, it's it's really eerie to, to me. It seems like the parallel uh, between all the wars that the U.S. have lost because of guerrilla fighting. Yeah, we the U.S.'s weakness is guerrilla warfare. Which is really wild to me that we have the highest military budget in the world, yet basically what we are most susceptible to is the cheapest military in the world, which is guerrilla fighting. Yeah. So the newly elected president from those elections that were held by the UN of South Korea is like, "Uh uh-uh, we are proclaiming martial law, and this is not happening. This is not okay. So beginning on April 3rd, 1948, South Korean authorities waged what's been described as a scorched earth campaign against just the residents of Jeju. Just anybody living in Mm -hmm. Jeju now is fair game, and they are just going to destroy everything. Mm-hmm. So from this point on, it was already bad. The responses to the protests were already bad. Uh, we already had those super gnarly right, right-wing right militia guys coming in and fucking with people. We heard reports that they were torturing children, that they were raping women. That was already happening. From this point on, it just gets so beyond brutal that this is the worst part of the episode. Um and again, I'm not going to be egregious, but I think it's important to, like, understand what the United States was backing. So, this is when the U.S. military-backed South Korean government starts engaging in multiple war crimes against the people of Jeju, including one incident in December of 1948 where military forces attacked a Jeju village, kidnapped several young men, and selected the 20 prettiest girls they could find in town. The girls were gang-raped for two weeks before being executed, and the men uh, were moved to a nearby beach where they were executed four days later. Over the span of a year, soldiers engaged in multiple incidents of this nature. They burned hundreds of villages to the ground. They raped and tortured countless islanders. They eventually burned 70% of the island's villages and killed, yeah, as many as 60,000 people, which was one-fifth of Jeju's population. And they did all of this while the highest authority in South Korea, the U.S. military, looked on. Americans even documented the incidents. Oh, my God. By 1949, these protests in South Korea spread to a place called Bukchan Village in Jiju. And we have some people who've collected stories from survivors there. So what basically happened to Bukchan Village is that protesters there killed two soldiers in a conflict. And the military responded by arriving with a bunch of right-wing gangs there to do what they always do. They burned down people's homes. Then they rounded up the villagers to a schoolyard. One survivor, who was nine years old at the time of the incident, says she was clubbed on the shoulder blade and collapsed to the ground. And to this day, she still cannot raise her arm properly. She says, a soldier yelled out something and suddenly there was gunfire and men's heads disappeared. As if on signal, machine guns started firing. She says that dozens of her family members were killed, including her three-year-old brother, who was clubbed to death. Another survivor, Kim Wan May, says the police and military shot nearly all 480 residents of the village there that day, all civilians held captive in the schoolyard. She managed to escape by hiding with the families of the police and the soldiers. She was just like a little girl, so she just hid with them and pretended like she was a family member. Um, And a few other survivors managed to make it out 
in just like various ways. So they slept in a rice mill that night and emerged the next morning to look for their family members amongst the bodies. She lost her parents, her husband, and her brother that day. Oh, I guess she was young enough to pass as a family member, but she was married. And she says, I saw the bodies. One baby was still nursing at its dead mother's breast. Really bad. Really, really bad. Uh, In another village, Dongkwang, soldiers came to kill villagers and burn their houses to the ground because they heard reports that someone in town had fed rebels. Kim Yao-su, now 71, uh, fled with his family to a secret cave in the mountains for two months until police eventually found his family there. They tried to flee, but his father was shot while they were trying to escape, and his father died two weeks later. His brother was killed in 1949 in a separate incident with the police as well. Below the cave, uh, now, there's a small marble tablet under a banyan tree that honors some of the massacre victims, and it says they were pure and honest people and blames government forces for reducing the hamlet to a place of killing, tragedy, and sad ghosts. Kang Chun-hee, the vice head of an association of massacre survivors and their families, says her father was detained and never heard from again. Her mother was beaten. Her baby brother was killed. She says our entire village was burned down. But not just for my village's sake, but for the entire Jeju Island, the U.S. military should be held accountable and pay compensation. Uh, Jeju Islanders say every family has relatives who died during these events. Oh, my God. Uh, Yang Ju Hoon, who's the former chairperson of a nonprofit called Jiju 43 Peace Foundation, because uh, that's the date that people say that the official kind of rebellion started, it investigates the massacre and says that for a year, soldiers and police led by American military forces executed insurgents and suspected communist sympathizers and buried them at the airport in Jiju. And that while Korea was under military rule until 1988, nobody was allowed to even say that this massacre took place. The search for the remains of the victims didn't begin until 2006, and between 2007 and 2009, investigators dug up nearly 400 sets of human remains, and there are thousands and thousands more. Uh, Yang Jo-hoon says, For 60 years, so many bodies lay next to the runway where planes take off and land every day, but we lived our lives as if they don't exist. A South Korean government survey found that police, soldiers, and right-wing paramilitary groups killed 84% of the victims uh, during the armed conflict and insurgents killed the rest. So that is the Jiju massacre that occurred. And again, it takes place in the context of uprisings all across South uh, Korea, but it was where it was hit the hardest. And, uh, you know, this kind of led up to the Korean War. And some historians say this was the beginning of the Korean War. And the Korean War went from 1950 to 1953, And one thing that historians always say about North and South Korea is that both countries believe in a future where there is a unified Korea. They both just think they are the rightful leaders of it. And this makes sense when you think about the Korean War, right? On June 25th, 1950, the Korean People's Army of North Korea entered South Korea to back the protesting people there and liberate South Korea from the control of Western imperialism, hoping to build a unified Korea without US or UN influence. Then on April 14th, 1950, Truman, uh, this was like a few months prior, right? Truman had received a document called National Security Council Paper Number 68, which was created by the Defense Department, the State Department, and the CIA. And it advised the president to grow the defense industry to counter what these agencies saw as the threat of global communism. So this was just two months prior to North Korea's attempt to liberate South Korea and reunify the country. And on June 25th, 1950, when this happened, North Korea, the troops 
coordinated an attack at several strategic points along what's called the 38th parallel, which is kind of like the dividing line between North Korea and South Korea, and then headed south towards Seoul. And the UN Security Council voted 9-0 to zero to adopt a resolution condemning it as a breach of peace, which is wild because it's like Korea was always unified, you know? Mm-hmm. It was the UN that divided it into North and South Korea, even though the people didn't want it. So North Koreans entering South Korea was seen as a breach of peace mm. by the UN, which I think is pretty significant and weird. Uh, so that happened, and then... On June 27th, two days later, President Truman ordered U.S. forces to go to South Korea to fight. Mm. To back back up the U.S. kind of military efforts there. So it's important to note that just like what would later happen in Vietnam, the United States never formally declared war on North Korea. Instead, Truman referred to the addition of ground troops there as like a police action. And this police action resulted in the U.S. military bombing villages, towns, and cities across North Korea, effectively leveling the country and destroying every single city there. But we never declared war. And on December 16, 1950, the end of that same year, U.S. President Jerry Truman right, declared a state of emergency proclaiming that communist imperialism was a threat to democracy. When we had been doing capitalist imperialism for at least 100 years, that's what happened that got everybody into this situation yeah what what i think about a lot is how capitalism has to use violence to enforce it yes Same with clo- like because it's a bad theory you can't convince people it sounds good because yeah, it doesn't it, it seems like if someone wants to do something you don't need to like club them over the head to get them to do that you're like hey like want to do this thing like it's here's good for my, both of us here's my reasoning like and if you have, I feel like if you have to force someone to do something with violence, it is... It's a bad idea. It's I mean, a bad idea. for. I would actually say this for everything. For everything. I mean, also you think back to the United States showing up in Japan, being like, we want to trade with you, and then bringing a warship with like 70 cannons on it. And it's like, they knew, we knew that it was not a good deal for Japan to open up trading to the United States because the United States would just pillage every resource it could from the country. We knew that. And that's why we showed up with a big angry boat with guns on it. Yeah, I mean, to me, it's like that's what the U.S. military is. It's just a show of force to get its way. It's not actually for peacekeeping. And I think that people still have this idea, like, that's like, you know, at this point, however many years old, that like you know, well, we we were the allies, we won the war, and it's like, yeah, but this is not what we're talking about. Yeah, this isn't World War II. Yeah. Um, after the outbreak of the Korean War, the U.S. assumed full command of the South Korean armed forces. We'd always kind of notionally been in control, but after this, the U.S. military was like, we're calling all the shots, like, no autonomy, you guys, like, we're in full command. And Brigadier General William Lynn Roberts commanded the Americans on Jeju in particular. Meanwhile, the South Korean military ordered the preemptive apprehension of suspected leftists nationwide, which is, like, really scary. Like, basically anybody that the South Korean military, now completely commanded by the United States without an inch of wiggle room, decided might potentially be a leftist or maybe one day would be sympathetic to the leftists, they just, like, rounded you up and had you killed. So... Thousands were detained on Jiju in particular, and they were sorted into four groups labeled A, B, C, and D based on the perceived security risks that each one posed. And on August 30th, 1950, a written order by senior intelligence officer in the South Korean Navy instructed Jiju's police to, quote, execute all of those in group C and D by firing squad no later than September 6th. Wow. It, it just reminds me of, like, 
the banality of evil. How there's just like some guy signing a paper be like, ah, do group C and D. Yeah. Like just how, how like, like not like just like you think of evil as like Dr. Evil. Like there's some like kooky guy who wants to just. master plan. Like I think that people think that there are evil people out there who's just like, I just want to destroy everything because I'm. I'm fucked up. I'm bored. I'm like, I'm like, I'm in line with the devil. It's like, no, you know what they say? The road to hell is paved with good intentions. I don't even know that this is good. I mean, this is not in good intentions. I'm saying the whole intention of all of this was for the United States and other Western countries to profit off of Korea. Well, also to me, this, it's also to terrorize people into accepting their, their own oppression, their way of government or, capitalism united states hegemony yeah i can't say the word but it's like it's accepting colonial like it's to me like the this a lot of the u.s show of force in terms of like um wanting you know to squash communism is actually terror and i think that that is actually uh, a big part of enforcing capitalism is using terror whether it be physical terror or existential terror because a lot of why people want to keep tap capitalism in place or you know not keep capitalism like why it to me it continues is one the terror of losing your job because yeah. you're fucked yeah if you lose your job you can be fucked if you don't have money you are fucked or the existential terror that if you don't have capitalism what's going to be replaced is a uh, fascist dictatorship by communists. Right, or, who are coming to steal your toothbrush. Yeah, which is like, it's a lot of dis, dis and misinformation. Yes. You know, where it's just like, the idea of like, well, if we don't have capitalism, then it's either just anarchy, everyone's just killing each other, or we are basically all wearing taupe matching outfits. Or like the myth that ha- that uh, the the US CIA propaganda wing spread that everyone in North Korea has to have the same haircuts. Yeah, and I think that it takes away it 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 takes away any imagination because to me when you're scared it's hard to think it's hard to be creative. Yes. And like I think there are many ways to live life that can be helpful to people and for people to thrive. Yeah. Uh, but it involves a little bit of imagination, and terror is meant to use to squash that imagination and to control people so they never think outside. The, like, you don't yeah, even dare. this is the only system. Because to me, it, it's the ideology, uh, the ideolo- uh, ideology that matters, because once you put an idea into someone's head that they think is, you know, good, it's hard for them to go back to that capitalism, conservative, controlling... I mean, I think that's interesting. I think there are two things I pe- see people say on the internet again that kind of, like, back up what you're saying. Like, one thing is people are always like, yeah, capitalism's not great, but it's the best option we have. And it's like, okay, well, that's actually not even statistically true. Like, statistically, everywhere socialism has been implemented has r- raised literacy rates and raised life expectancy and reduced infant mortality. Yeah, so think- that's why I'm always like, what metric are you using? But then the second thing that people always say when they're confronted with this idea of, like, capitalism is the only way that things could be going is they'll quote some misinformation or they'll say 
you know, communism or socialism only looks good on paper. They'll even be like, it doesn't look good because of some misinformation, or they will acknowledge it looks good on paper. The idea is good, but it doesn't work in, in real life. And one of my favorite things I see people say back to that is capitalism doesn't even look good on paper. Yeah. Capitalism doesn't even sound good when you explain it. Well, yeah, it's like, it's also to me, even just talking about this stuff, we you move the Overton window left. Yeah. And that is incredibly, that hurts the pocketbooks of the the few people, and I mean few people, who are in charge. It yeah. is very few people also, like, it, I recently have been thinking about this too. I was, I don't know where I heard it, maybe like a podcast or something, where it's like, we talk a lot about how our political system is just the economic model. Yeah. And we don't think about maybe the philosophy, you know, philosophical, like what we always just think of it in terms of dollars and cents. Right. Or like, but that's interesting because I think that some like right wing Christian conservatives do think about our political and economic system being tied to an ideology. That the is ideology true. is just right wing Christianity that's not even rooted in the Bible. Yeah. And which like, is interesting. They want a theocracy. Yeah. Uh, that it, it's so interesting. You also hear people who are like, uh, who are fundamentalists who are like, oh, I want, uh, communism just so a man can provide for his wife yeah it's very interesting but it is interesting too because if you were really wanting a theocracy based on christianity the original christians were socialists so it, you would want socialism yeah that's it, the that's the political it's like association even, with that it's idea like, it's all it's even something completely different if you were you know like but that's going into like yeah. you know like if you think of like what was there before money it wasn't bar if you yeah. read like like the david graber like first yeah. five thousand years of debt it actually is something completely different that people think could never ever be true but it functioned for a thousand you know yeah the way that it's we true. think of money economics it's so now limited. it's it's very limited but yeah to me it's just like you have to use terror to enforce this conservative mindset. Right, because it does not even sound appealing to people on paper. No, it doesn't. It sound, doesn't. Yeah. So, okay, obviously this whole thing was a proxy war, right? Proxy war during the Cold War. The U.S. obviously was supporting South Korea, running South Korea, and the Soviet Union and China were supporting North Korea. Um, in this, though, proxy war, three or 30,000 Americans alone died during this. Wow. During the Korean War. And the Korean War went on for a total of three years and killed nearly five million people in total. I just think, you know, I know it's, it, I think just because of like hippie culture where people is like, war is wrong, but I'm just like, this is just such an absurd reason for people to die. It is. It's absurd for people and to it, die for it this makes, reason. It, it makes my, all my bones shiver to and, think about it. Okay, so listen to this. This will upset you even more. Five million people died in this conflict, right? And in the end, when the peace treaties were signed, pretty much nothing changed. So the Korean War armistice was signed on July 27th, 1953. It did technically draw a new border between North Korea and South Korea. And it granted South Korea some additional territory and demilitarized the zone between the two nations. But it wasn't too far off from the original division. And it certainly was not the unified and free Korea that people were hoping for. The thing we got from the Korean War is the DMZ, the Demilitarization Zone. Have you heard of this, Kenna? I have. Isn't it just like a stretch of land between North and South Korea? Yep, it is, and it was created July 1953 by that armistice agreement. It replaced just the horizontal line dividing North and South Korea along that like 38th 
parallel line or whatever. And it made it more of a meandering path. And it's around two and a half miles wide. It's 150 miles long. And it did cause North Korea to lose around 1,500 miles in territory, but it left South Korea's capital city of Seoul within striking distance of the border. So it was kind of viewed as like a trade-off. It's like both of us have vulnerabilities here. And the ceasefire was signed, yes, but no formal peace treaty ever was drafted to end the war. We do still have the demilitarized zone today, known as the DMZ, and it does remain one of the most heavily guarded places on Earth on both sides. So all of these people died pretty much nothing changed and this is all the result of imperialism and colonialism and the United States wanting to control Korea as an asset. And I think the reason why this story is so heartbreaking is because it's so common. It's just like another example of the U.S. military and government doing fucked up things around the globe in order to maintain the dominance of white western capitalism and wealth through imperialism. And this goes back to that tweet I talk about sometimes that I saw, which is, if your politics extend to nothing other than USA bad, you will probably end up on the right side of history most of the time. Like, it's shocking that we as a country have caused more harm than any other country on Earth, but we still get to act like we're afraid of outside aggressors. Like, we're afraid of what would happen if China has nukes, or we're afraid of what would happen if Russia has nukes. We're the bad guys. We've got the nukes. We've used them. We have shown absolutely no signs of being afraid of entering a foreign country and absolutely destroying in brutal brutal ways all human life there to make a point to get what we want and it seems like the rest of the world arming themselves is just them defending themselves from us and we've seen what happens when the united states takes a special interest in your country and what follows is situations like the gg massacre and we hear stories like this all too often in numerous countries around the globe. So the worst thing that you could ever experience as a country existing in the world is the United States noticing you. Yeah. Yeah. So that is the story of the Gigi Massacre, which I had never heard of, but is really, really sad and scary. And yeah, just sad because I feel like we've heard a lot of fucked up things like this, like in our Operation Condor episode, Mm -hmm. you know, it's very similar. a, a, A pattern to me, actually, you know, what I was thinking about, and I, I don't mean to turn this, like, you know, towards uh, myself or anything, but it's just, like, what I was, like, this could, to me, we all, like, oh, this happens in other countries. The way that these things play out, you could, I could totally see this happening here. Like, if people striked enough, you know, if people... Yeah. You know, people don't think it could happen here, but with this amount of firepower, this amount of military power, it makes me really frightened on, like, what, like, why there can't be more, like, strikes, unionizing, more social programs. It's because, like, that kind of thing is met with superior violence. And we did see that happen in Chicago with the May Day protests. Yeah. Very similar. People I mean, went it's on strike in America, and protests. And but it's, it's also happened in American history. You think yeah. about, like... Um, well, that was the May Day protest yeah, yeah, in yeah. Chicago. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. And the, the bosses hired cops, and the cops shot into the crowd and killed people. And we do, we do see these things happen here, but that doesn't diminish the importance of the struggle and the importance of the fight. But it is... I don't know. It is very discouraging I guess but you can't the thing about the thing about wanting to build a better world is you can't get defeated you can't no you have to have revolutionary optimism you have to have revolutionary hope that things could be better that you could build some sort of 
better world. And I think, like, we've seen successes, like the guerrilla fighting in Vietnam. Like, Vietnam pushed out the United States. They yeah. defeated the imperialist forces. And, like, I, I even think about... China. China defeated the imperialist yeah, US forces. Yeah, even not terms in, like, a military political sphere, but even in just, like, you think about strikes happening so we could have a 40-hour work week. That yeah. was considered... It, that would be like us now being like, we want a 10-hour work week. No, it, it was less than half of what people were working. Yeah. People were working, on average, 100 hours per week. And, you know, the thing is, like, these kinds of stories, they happen in the U.S. on smaller scales. Like, anybody who's gone to a protest has seen the police get violent and shoot people with pellet guns and tear gas people and beat people with batons. And this does happen. Our police brutalize us here in the United States as well. We detain reporters. We do things that are illegal that are not things that our police should be able to do. The police kill, obviously, innocent, unarmed, especially black people all the day for things like routine traffic stops. Like, this type of violence does occur here. But I think that a lot of what goes into us normalizing it is how we control the narrative around it. We don't Mm -hmm. think of ourselves as oppressed people. We think of ourselves as free people. But in reality, it's like we're not that free. And we're not comparatively free to other countries. If you live in a country where the police pull you over and... For some reason, something you do scares them for a second and they can shoot you and murder you and then nothing happens to that police officer. Are you free? Yeah. You're not. And that is the country we live in. If you can't protest things that you think are unfair without police beating the shit out of you, even if you're press, if you can't show up as press to cover that event without the police tear gassing you in the face and shooting you with a pellet gun, are you free? Is that a free country? No, that's not a free country. So it's like all the things we do to other countries... We do in the United States as well, just on smaller scales, more quiet scales that we think we can get away with. And I think what people really rely on here is the lack of information spreading. Yeah, I also think it relies on people just not knowing history. And like, not- I have ne- I have never heard of this before. Like, I have... You think that'd be something they talked about in high school? No. Or, you know, just like, even just like a general... Like, I took like, um, like a... Like a Asian, like, West Asian history class, never heard about it. Yeah. Yeah, I think, like, also people rely on this idea that we think it's worse everywhere else. That whole idea, well, yeah, capitalism's bad, but the alternative would be so much worse. And I think that is why the CIA invests so much money in propaganda to make us believe things that aren't true about places like the USSR or about places like North Korea. And this is something I talk about all the time where I'm like, I don't know what happens in North Korea, and I can never go check it out. Not because North Korea won't let me in there, but because as an American citizen, the United States forbids me from traveling to North Korea. And when I learned that, it blew my mind, because I thought North Korea wouldn't allow me in. No, North Korea allows people from other countries in all the time. People from Australia go visit North Korea. White Westerners go to North Korea and experience it. But I can't as an American, not because of North Korea, but because the U.S. government won't let me. Well, also, too, like, to me, if... If you were, like, in a, like, even, like, a Disney movie, we would be considered the bad guys. We're the bad guys of every story. Yeah, it's, like, it's always, like, it's so funny that, like, little kids' movies are, like, the big, like, evil uh, country is coming in and, like, the people just want to, like, live in peace. You'd be, like, these are the bad guys. These These are, are this is not, like, this is not a good thing to happen. And I think, I think it's really important to know this stuff not to just have context for 
back then, but you have context for now. For now, for what we see happening. And this is why whenever the U.S. government points at a country or points at a person and says, that's our enemy, I'm skeptical. It makes me less likely to believe it. Anybody the United States tells me is my enemy, that makes me believe that that person and I probably have more in common or more interests aligned uh, than I ever would have thought before. And that's why it's so important for the government to single them out and tell me that's who I should not trust because they're trying to keep me from finding something out. And it sounds conspiratorial, but it's just historical. Well, to me, it's it's like an information war. And what better way to win an information war than to keep things secret or to keep to keep things confusing yes. or to make the person on the other side look like the fucking guy with the hair from H Aliens. Yeah, exactly. To make you seem insane. Yeah, totally. Like, <laughs> Do you like it? You're like... <laughs> yes. No, it is. It's totally They're true. like, this person is just kooky. And then you think about this story and you think about it in the context of all the stuff we're told to believe about North Korea from CIA propaganda wings. Again, like Radio Free Asia, Voice of America, the United States funds those 100% and they started as CIA programs. Like, they are stated Whoa. propaganda tools. And you listen to them tell you stuff like, everybody in North Korea has to have the same haircuts. And you hear people go on TV and be like, the trains don't actually move. People push the trains and everybody has to have a picture of Kim Jong-un in their house. And if there's, the military comes through and if there's dust on the picture, they shoot you. And you're like, this doesn't sound rational or even logistically possible to implement. And when you start thinking about why would people want me to believe this, and then you think about the history of North Korea versus South Korea, it's like, oh, I have to believe as an American that North Korea is the bad guy, is the enemy, because that means the United States was the good guy in the South. And that's yeah. the only way and I can believe that, that, the United, that the United States was good, is if I believe North Korea is evil. Well, the thing is, it's like, we don't even have the information, like, I'm sure... You know, we we wouldn't even know if fucked up shit was happening because of this information. Like, to me, the information war is basically you spread so much informational chaos, which it makes you question everything. Right. And that's, I think that's the point. Yeah, know? that is the point. And it is interesting. It's like, and I consider myself a pretty skeptical person. I don't jump on bandwagon thinking too often. You know, and you think about all of this and it just goes back to all of this like cold war style propaganda any country that threatens like the hegemony and power of the united states is our enemy and it doesn't matter what the real story is all that matters is that you believe the united states is good and every other country on the planet is bad and the only countries that are kind of okay are the ones the united states tells you to care about right now right here today but in 10 days it could change yeah and that's it, it does make it makes you feel like the hair guy, the ancient aliens hair guy. I, you feel like <laughs> I that think that guy is actually really fucked up. <laughs> yeah, I don't know like, anything well, about like, him. Like, like uh, I think uh, you know. I'm, well, uh, like the whole ancient aliens thing is yeah, fucked up because it's yeah. like people of color couldn't build things oh, without super... white people with steamboats. Oh, and it's also like all that shit just leads down to anti-Semitism. It totally does. It's like, so it's, weird. it's yeah. all racism. Yeah, but it's just it is like, weird. But it's like, yeah, like I think the information war is like is at, like the existential war is as important as the physical war for maintaining uh hegemony it is it totally is um anyway that i think is our super fucked up sad episode about the juju massacre is there anything else you want to add <sighs> i don't think so usa bad <laughs> usa bad Thanks so much for listening to another episode of Pick Me Up, I'm Scared. If you would like to join us on Patreon, you can find us there at patreon.com slash pickmeupimscared. 
For $3 a month, you can access bonus content there. But if three bucks a month is too much for you to spend right now, we totally get it and we're just happy you're here. As always, you can find the sources for this week's episode just by scrolling down a bit in the description.